Traveling to consciousness, exploring spiritual journeys to find answers in uncertainty. What is up, Conscious Monkeys? Welcome to another episode of Traveling to Consciousness. I am your host, Clayton Cuteri, and today's guest is the host of the Soul Seeker podcast, which is pretty similar to this, so you'll have to check that out after you listen to our conversation. He was on Silicon Valley Business Journal's 40 Under 40 list. He created a million-dollar business working four hours a day. His success in Silicon Valley has allowed him to explore the meaning of life and specifically his life. (laughs) He's the author of three books, including Soul Life Balance. In it, he discusses everything from plant medicine to his journey to the Akashic Records to healing to channeling to ETs, all this stuff that I know we'd love to discuss here. And quite frankly, if I go on about all of his achievements, it'll probably last the entire podcast. So if you want to see those, click the link below because we got to talk to the man here. Conscious Monkeys, welcome to the show, Sam Cabert. Sam, thanks for being here, man. Clayton, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here and chat with you. Yeah, and quite frankly, I'm <laughs> it's uh after even after reading that intro, I'm kind of sitting here like I want to talk about all of it, man, because I want to talk about everything from creating a business, a million dollar business in four hours a day. I want to talk about how you got your plant medicine. So maybe we start at the beginning with, you know, what was like the first thing you wanted to be when you grow up? Did you have like this aspiration mm-hmm. to be in Silicon Valley, make a million dollar business? What did, what did little Sam want to be? Dude, that's such a good question. Um, so I grew up in the town of Gilroy, California. It's about 30 minutes south of Silicon Valley, a farm town, grew up in the cuts, um, horses, goats, chickens, the whole thing. And I didn't really have neighbors, so I would play basketball by myself. You know, I'd try to get my older brother to play, and then I would always beat him one-on-one. He was more into reading and books and being smart, and so he didn't really like physical activity. But, I mean, basketball was like, you know, one of those movies like Hoosiers or one of them, they show like, you know, the kids in the uh, farm towns or in the country playing basketball. And that is kind of the cliche because it's one of the few sports you can play by yourself. Um, and, you know, I had a lot of friends that would skate and things like that, but we, I didn't have like, you know, curbs to grind on or really anywhere to skate. So it was more basketball. And I remember trading basketball NBA cards with my fifth grade teacher after school or, you know, at lunch, I don't remember kind of weird too. just thinking back to that, like trading cards with your teacher. But I remember him asking me this question, like what I wanted to be when I grew up, grew up. And I said, an NBA player. And he looked at me and he basically said, and so no, he, I don't remember verbatim what he said, but he said, you know, the odds are of making it to the NBA are very slim and you, you're not going to make it. You're probably not going to make it. You know that, right? Something to that effect, like pretty close to that. And then I remember being like, oh yeah, yeah, I know. And then I didn't know that I, I thought I was going to make it to the NBA, you know, and then that crushed my dreams. And then from there I got into, uh, wanting to be a broadcaster. You know, I grew up a Warriors fan in the nineties when they were terrible and Jim and Bob there, they were still the broadcasters up through a few years ago. And, um, 
yeah, I was like, uh, I wanted to be an announcer. I wanted to be a broadcaster, all these different things. And then I kind of forgot about all that. I forgot about all that, but it's interesting doing the work now and like inner child stuff, kind of like what you're talking about inner Sammy, if you will, um, what he wanted to be in revisiting that because I've recently made that um, connection with my teacher. And I was like, you know, I don't have the skills. We don't, we don't have the skills as a fifth grade um, human being to, you know, hear something like that and be like, no, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I was like, okay, now my dreams are crushed, you know? So it's interesting um, kind of going back. And that's such a good question. So, because that's something that I've experienced. And quite frankly, I reading your uh, book, I think there's going to be a lot of times where I say, that's something I've experienced throughout this, but <laughs> so someone keep a running total. Um, but I wanted to be a sports kid as well. Like I was ready for baseball or football. I wasn't sure which I was just like, you know, it's going to happen. But for me, somewhere along the way, kind of like you experienced, it's like the negativity kind of gets seeped into this, you know, environment of like, well, the odds are against you. The percentages are so impossible, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny because a part of it's like, well, yeah, everyone's telling me how impossible it is. Like, you know, it takes a kid with a solid mindset to push through that. Right. With you connecting to your inner child, do you do you think you've discovered anything as to why maybe, you know, society or parents like want to or that they instill that maybe negativity or I don't really want to call it a realist expectation, but it's almost just I see it as negativity. How do you kind of view it? Your question being like why most people would be kind of negative towards children. Is that what you're saying? As opposed to empowering, right? Because Yeah, you know, it, I, I get what you're saying. And I don't have any kids now. I'm 33, about to be 34 and single. And I don't have intend on having kids. You know, maybe it will happen. Um, but that said, I've been around more in the past year or so my friend's kids. Um, I spent a lot of time with my good friends, shout out to Tony and Cass, they're two boys, they're seven and nine. And then my good friend, Jamie McFadden, her, her daughter, who's incredible. And she's, I think five, Sophia. Um, so I've been, and some other friends with kids too. So I've been around kids more recently and it's so amazing seeing how my friends who are into like consciousness and spirituality, how they parent their kids. And this one experience with uh, my friend, we were at the beach and her dog had recently passed. Um, she had a five, she has a five-year-old daughter and out of nowhere, her daughter just started like screaming, crying in front of a lot of people on the beach. And, and seeing my friend, Jamie, parent her was incredible because she really asked her daughter to lean into those emotions and like, what does it feel like? And all this and, and like encouraged her to let it out. Meanwhile, like we're two feet from people ever, anywhere you look. And I just thought in that moment, like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. This is, this is how you parent. And growing up, that wasn't the case, you know? So I think you're, you're totally right. There's plenty of people nowadays still that parent with those more negative type things, like in a situation like that, oh my God, you're so embarrassing me, like stop, would you just stop? You know, that type of thing, that's what the norm is. Um, however, like being in the conscious community and hanging out with people that are mindful and spiritual and all that, 
it's really beautiful to see the way that they're raising their, their kids. And, you know, when their kids are talking about seeing um, imaginary friends or even aliens or, you know, one kid essentially described astral traveling, not knowing what astral traveling is and their parents, like not shaming them and telling them that they're ridiculous, like really asking them more about it. And it's, it's really cool. And it opens up my heart to see that, you know? Absolutely. Because, you know, that's something that's like, I feel like that was so missed in history in human history everywhere. And I think that's honestly a beautiful thing to hear. You know, you're, you're 34, I'm 28. So, you know, maybe within the next couple of years, I'll probably be exposed to it a bit more. But to me, that's such an empowering and powerful thing to hear that that parenting shift or dynamic has now at least started to occur. Because that's going to just send ripples throughout that kid's entire life too. And every person that that person's mm-hmm. going to touch. Yeah, that and also like, I'm sure you have some friends who, you know, you might ask them, hey, when did you get into spirituality? And they're like, what do you mean get into it? Like I was I grew into it because of my mom or my dad or my parents. And, you know, that's more the rare side, I feel like uh, that we see that or experience that or have friends like that. But it, I do agree with you that this is happening more and more, but it's cool when you come across those people that were, that are your age and grew up that way. And then you kind of get to see how they perceive things differently because that's the way they grew up, you know? And then it's really um, hopeful in terms of like this next generation, knowing that more and more are being raised that way to your point, the ripple effect. Yeah. And yeah, I think that if I I think that I've had two people on. Um, one girl was named Teal, and the other one's Sam <laughs> as well. She was the last episode. And they both had like one parent who was kind of spiritually based. And it was interesting because I don't know that they were very overt about it. It was more of just like this kind of like undertone of spirituality. It was more of like a well, let's, you know, look at the secret that that book and documentary or you know, why have I only been here for 11 years? And their response is like, no, you've been here a lot longer than that. And so it's, you know, almost this like, it it sounds, it's like a little bit nuanced in their life. And of course, I, you know, small sample size so far, just kind of breaking into the scene. I know you've been in a, a veteran in the consciousness, spirituality space. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, it's so, it's so fascinating to see kind of the different ways that people like their upbringing and then if they were empowered as a kid or if their parents were like more hands off or, you know, kind of to see, to see how that has like unfolded throughout their life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. I agree. So then you, okay. So it sounds like you were kind of going through this phase of, you know, well, if I'm, if it's quote unquote impossible for me to be a basketball player, then I want to be around the game. I want to announce how did that kind of take you into college? Where did you think about going into college for broadcasting? Dude, I, I don't know. Like it's <laughs> it, it's a good question, but yeah, I mean, I was such a stubborn kid and and so negative. Like I remember rewinding before fifth grade, I had to be like nine years old. I have no idea what grade that is. Maybe first, I have no idea, but I had to be really young and I was sick and I was signed up for T-ball or softball, whatever it was back then. And by the time I was healthy again, I was already like a week or two behind and I threw a fit, like not 
like, no, I'm not going, I'm not going because I was going to be behind. And that was like the worst thing I could have ever done because I never played baseball again. And then I didn't learn how to properly and actually swing a bat till college in taking a baseball class in college. Um, and even like football too, I always want to play football and I got started. I never, you know, I played recess and things like that, but I been so trained to like keep my elbow in for basketball that like I haven't, I, even now I still can't throw a football. I throw a football like a girl, you know, that's what toxic masculinity would say, not that, <laughs> because it's not like throwing like a girl. That's just the saying, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so anyways, this is so roundabout, but like, I think growing up because I was so stubborn and, you know, negative and I would throw a temper tantrum saying, I'm not from this planet. You're not my real parents and all this type of stuff. It, it all kind of makes sense now because, you know, my parents, I love them. They're amazing people and they're, they were, they are and worse great parents. And just at the time of growing up, you know, and what they had been around, it wasn't the thing to you know, really ask your kid like, Hey, what's going on? It's just like, Oh, how do I deal with this? And that's no shame on them. And I don't remember the experiences well enough to even say that how they handled it. It's just like, you know, hearing stories from them, um, because I don't remember a lot of my childhood. So I say all that to say that it took me a long time to bring positivity in my life. And in high school, uh, I probably got into smoking weed like around seventh grade. And then, you know, I think uh, by freshman year of high school, I didn't even try out for the basketball team. And I knew I would be second string if I tried out anyways. And I got into metal and, you know, all the things. And then by my junior year, I remember going from like more dark and goth type look to like shaving my head and more like badass type look and being like, I'm going to join the army because I know I'm fucked up and I, I want to get straight now. And that didn't happen for several reasons. I ended up going to college at Chico State in Northern California, party school. And I joined a fraternity, Sigma Chi, and through joining the fraternity, living above the most popular bar in town, repping multiple companies like Monster Energy Drinks, a spring break company, anti-hangover drink company, startup, um, things like that, top frat, all the, all the things. It really gave me that structure and accountability and discipline that I wanted to go to the army for very different way to go about it. Very different way. Cause it's party school. So a right. whole like opposite, but at the same time, like the fraternity gave me so much structure and, you know, I was even impressed with what happened, but between like college and that time when my teacher told me that I wouldn't be able to make it to the NBA. Yeah. I had thoughts about being an announcer, you know, and I would, I would s pretend to be the announcer at home or I'd scream along at games with the announcer and, you, you know, try different voices when you're introducing players or whatever. And then the play-by-play -play stuff too, but somewhere along the lines, I forgot about that, you know, probably around junior high or high school and was no longer like 
anything. And I think that's why I brought up the negativity and all that, because, you know, I was not ambitious. I remember being in high school uh, being like, all right, well, you know, worst case scenario, my brother's smart. I can crash on his couch. You know, if, if I become a fuck up, whatever, I'll just sleep on his couch. Like that was my ambition at the time. And then through the fraternity and my major was recreation at a party school. So, I mean, it's not like I went to school for something, you know, let's be real. I have a BS in rec uh, party school, but, um, yeah, th- through the fraternity, giving me the opportunity to show up for myself and having discipline. And that was something I was seeking stacked with getting a DUI at 22 and, and seeing other people that I knew acquaintances be like, welcome to the club and me being like, you know, heartbroken and like feeling like I was a failure. Cause I was, cause I had a DUI and, um, you know, just really ashamed of myself and not wanting to be part of their club. That's really where the chip on my shoulder came. And I started my first business, um, within a year of getting my DUI and that business fast forward 11 years later, is still my number one business. It's rebranded into Swagworks now. Um, but yeah, it, it really stemmed from that DUI. If I didn't get the DUI and I wrote about this in the book as well, if I can get that DUI, I don't know how driven I would have became there. You know, I obviously I believe in spirituality and everything. And I question like how much of his free will and how much of things are actually, you know, destined to happen. Uh, but I do think if not for having that DUI, there would have been something that would have gotten me to the path of being like, okay, I need to prove myself and I can do that through a business. You know, what did that moment kind of feel like when you got the DUI? Like, was there a spark Did something flick in you that then kind of drove you towards starting this business or. So let me paint the scene. Please this do. was uh July 4th, 4th of July in South Lake Tahoe. And for those of you guys that aren't California natives, South Lake Tahoe is like an amazing place beautiful. to go snowboard. And yeah, beautiful, Incredible. right? You've been? Yeah. I've been to Heavenly yeah. multiple times. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it was kind of near Heavenly, but this was in the summer. And, you know, Tahoe doesn't get talked about in the recognition as much for how beautiful and warm and fun their summers are. And, Heavenly is kind of, it's near what they call state line, the border of Nevada, where all the casinos are. And a little bit further, I think it's actually in Nevada, is Zephyr Cove. Have you been there? No, I haven't. But I do know what you're talking about because like the mountain of Heavenly, it's basically divided. And when you're skiing on it, there'll be signs where it's like California and then Nevada and you like can like ski in and out of both states. (laughs) Yeah. Tahoe is dope. Yeah. It's so cool. But anyway, so long story short, we were camping probably about 20 or 30 minutes away from the beach we went to. Um, there was probably about 30 of us from my college and we were maybe about three hours away from Tahoe. So, you know, we, we really rolled in deep and then we we're all camping and we went to the beach and we thought we were so smart at the time. I remember I had a buddy, he came up with this idea because he couldn't have liquor on the beach. And mind you, we're in college. Um, so I forget exactly what he did, but something like we got a lot of water bottles and then we 
took uh, most of them, poured them out and then put vodka in them. And then we put those at the bottom and then put real water on top. So that's how like we brought in our booze to the beach. And I don't remember much. All I really remember is we hitched a ride in some random van and, and to get a ride back to the campsite. And we were doing lines with random dudes in the back of a van. Um, and then we got back to the campsite. Okay, I, it's coming back to me now. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a buddy who lived about 10 minutes away from the campsite. And another friend was making a big old fuss about, you know, they're not being, they're only being one shower where we were at and we were there with a bunch of women. So, you know, it was going to take forever before we went to state line. So he was trying to convince me to drive to our mutual friend's house to take a shower at his parents' house. And I remember telling him, no, 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 you know, and, and I don't want to take a shower. This is for you. You drive, you know, like, no, no, I'm happy here. All the things. This guy also my best friend at the time, we're still super close, was the reason in a lot of ways I became an entrepreneur. He really set the se- the stage um, for me thinking that way, despite my parents being entrepreneurs and their parents being entrepreneurs and whatnot. I, I had never seen myself being an entrepreneur, but anyways, um, he's been instrumental in my life in different ways. And he's like the best salesperson I know. He's crushing it um right now in his career as well but anyways he convinced me i'm a sovereign being so i i'm taking responsibility i took responsibility at the time as well and i did a california roll where you don't stop all the way and i got popped for a california roll just like you know kind of rolling through the stop sign and then i got pulled over test and got arrested, spent the night in the drunk tank, um, listening to the fireworks from the jail cell. So now 4th of July is always kind of interesting for me. But yeah, I mean, you know, no shame. I was I was crying straight up. And, you know, I don't really, it, it takes a lot for me to cry, maybe whatever. But I remember the cop was super chill and he was saying how like the, um, the chief or whatever of their, uh, department had one or two DUIs. So he was telling me how like, Hey, your life isn't over all this. And then, you know, picking up the phone and calling my parents from the jail cell and, you know, talking with them when I got out or at some point and, you know, hearing it from them, what it felt like to receive a call of like, you know, County jail in Tahoe is, is trying to reach you, you know, and, you know, hearing it from their point of view and, you know, how furious they were and, you know, disappointed and how that made me feel and just everything. Um, and then the next morning I got picked up or I took an Uber Uber wasn't around. I don't remember how I got back to the campsite, but I remember getting back super early. It was like 6am or something, maybe 8am and it felt early. And there's a few guys up around the fire and there was one dude specifically that was like, welcome to the club, bro. You know? And then I was just like, Ooh, you know, it was, it was a huge wake up to where I'm spending time. And the next few weeks I would go to the bars and challenge myself to not drink and order. Now what I know is called a blue dolphin. It's a water. (laughs) (laughs) You can go to the bar and order blue dolphin and I think it comes with like a lemon or something. Anyways. Um, I need to know that. So yeah. And just being, that. <laughs> a, 
Yeah, yeah. But anyways, just going to different parties and whatnot and seeing how pe- different people would react. And, you know, some people would be like, you can still drink, you know, or, you know, whatever it'd be. And it was just like, oh man, I need to do an inventory of how I'm spending my life and who I'm spending it with. So that was the catalyst for sure. I mean, that sounds super, pol- like super, super powerful. I mean, especially, so my first thought was like when you were talking about like you kind of breaking down the jail cell because personally i know whenever i've cried and even more so recently it's you know either usually from a state of just pure bliss and enjoyment and love for life or it's the processing of kind of like emotions that haven't that i haven't dealt with like things from the past Mm. maybe sort of trauma whatever trying to find its way out do you feel like it was some of that in that jail cell or do you think it was maybe just the mindset of you know my life's over kind of thing no, I think it was just like my life's over, like all night. And just, you know, I was still messed up on drugs and alcohol, you know, and I don't really remember it too well now, but I remember the feeling of my life's over and I'm a fuck up, I'm a screw up. And, you know, all of that, it, it didn't feel like it was processing anything other than that. It was just emotions in the moment, you know. And then it was kind of getting back to that campfire when they were like, Oh, like, you know, we've all had a DUI, like, like, yeah, here's your badge of honor. That's where you kind of like felt that almost sobering moment of like, shit, (laughs) this isn't the crew. I want to be be in your club. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Were you doing any sort of like introspection, spirituality work, reading that kind of like, you know, the idea of you're the culmination of the five people you spend the most time with. Like, were you kind of doing that sort of work or exposed to those ideas at this point? No, I mean, you know, college for me was really fast. Um, We drank almost every day and we would have people up above our house, you know, that were on benders or, and doing drugs. And while, you know, sometimes I'd partake, sometimes I'd be like, I gotta go to class. It's a Monday afternoon, you know? Um, but it was very much the epitome of like a, a party school and a party experience. Um, so there wasn't much time for that. And, you know, I didn't realize till like a year or two after leaving college that heart, heart, heartburn wasn't my natural, wasn't natural. You know, I had heartburn from how much we drank, you know, and then stopping drinking for a bit. I was like, Oh, I can like breathe again. And I had no idea at the time. Like it was, eh, I had a little bit of an idea, but I thought it would always be that way. Um, so yeah, there wasn't much time for introspection, but like I mentioned, um, I, I was very hungry in that I had a lot of different rep jobs. Um, I was promoted from just being a campus ambassador for a startup, uh, anti hangover company to being the, I forget the exact title, but it was basically recruiting, training and managing campus reps across the nation. So that was cool. Uh, and there was, yeah, you know, I, I had some, um, I was hungry, but I didn't really have like resources and, and I didn't really look, seek out for them either in terms of content back then that this was like 2010 when I graduated. So, you know, I don't think podcasts were a thing or even audible. Um, yeah, I think any content I would consume had to do with, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't think we really had time for content. You know, it was, it was Probably a like fast paced lifestyle. Or Facebook. 
Yeah, we had, yeah, we had Facebook. Facebook was way different um back then. Um, you know, and even still like yeah, we I, I didn't pay attention to the news or anything. I think it was all just uh being very present, you know, and not in a toxic way, but it's all good, you know. It's part of my history and part of what got me here today, you know. It's part of the story, man. I mean, you can't have yeah, exactly. And so it's good to I guess not good, but I was in, it's good to, uh, damn, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say good and bad less in my vocabulary. Mm, <laughs> uh, I love it. But it's interesting to kind of start out in those places because, you know, I, I try to see it as sort of a, a inspirational thing for anyone who kind of comes across this and is dealing with, you know, drinking too much or doing too many drugs. So how did you you found yourself at that campfire when they were like, all right, welcome to the club. And you were like, damn, I need to do some self inventory. What did that process look like? How did you kind of go from that to starting a business that's still in the works 10 years later, 11 years later? Hmm. So that was July 2010, I think. And then Chico feet, the idea came months later because i incorporated in march of 2011 and i wanted to do my internship in hawaii austin texas for some reason or san diego those were my three places and i was looking at like whiteboard cable parks and oh florida too um so yeah, I didn't land anything I was, I wanted to do. Like I really wanted to work at a wakeboard cable park. And back then, like these were just starting to pop up and they're still super rare now. And one of my friends from school had a job at a boutique hotel in San Diego and she recruited me and asked me if I'd want to do my internship there. And it's unpaid. And I said, yes. And it was mostly because I was running out of options. I didn't really have any options. Uh, it was harder finding an internship than I expected. And I was like, it's in San Diego. So I called up my mom one day and I said, Hey, I got an internship. I'm going to San Diego, blah, 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 whatever. And then she and my dad own an office supply company and part of what they do, like 5% of what they do, if that is selling promotional products, branded merchandise, because it's a similar buyer as the people that purchase office supplies. So she goes, oh, we have these amazing sandals that leave an impression in the sand of, you know, any company logo, they can be totally customized, any color, you know, and you just walk in the sand and it leaves an impression in the sand, the company logo, you should totally go around and sell them in San Diego. And I go, mom, I'm going down there for an internship. Like I, I do not want to sell for you guys They're They were always trying to get me to sell office supplies. I never wanted to do it. Um, and then in that moment, I was like, oh. Chico feet sandals. I go, hmm. And my buddy, Kevin, same dude that, you know, talked me into, uh, <laughs> driving, getting the DUI. He was in, in my house at the time. I go home, mom. I go, Hey, Kevin, what do you think of Chico feet sandals? They leave an impression saying the words Chico feet. And this dude, like even <laughs> still to this day does not make eye contact. He is like on his phone playing bejeweled or whatever game, you know? And he looked up from his phone and he was like, Oh yeah, I like it. I go, mom, I got to call you back. So I started talking with him about my idea a little bit more. And the whole idea was to 
in the town of Chico, where I went to school, everyone calls the bottom of their feet Chico feet because they're dirty and, you know, from partying and it's hot, summery town, um, slip and slides, all the things floating on the river. So everyone's got dirty feet. So they call them Chico feet. So the idea was to take a, a common expression and attach it to a tangible product so that when I would call, you know, say businesses and be like, hey, this Sam with Chico feet, I would meet them with the emotional level of the child and that's uh, great in sales and they would be like oh what's that versus hey the sandwich value business products so the idea was never really to sell sandals it was just to use the sandals to build brand awareness to then sell swag promotional products brand merchandise to companies um so it kind of it kind of just came about organically my dad gave me the book Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. I, I drove about 11 hours from Northern California to Southern California to move to San Diego. And I listened to the book on CD back then <laughs> in my 2004 runner. Loved that car. Yeah, right? CD. Um, and I remember Napoleon Hill saying that, you know, an idea that is meant for you feels like it comes from sixth sense and I got chills and it was like, Ooh, that, that is this one. And I had no idea like the term manifesting at the time, but for anyone that has read the book, think and grow rich by Napoleon Hill written in 1937, or you can just imagine was it that long ago? think and grow rich. Was, was it that? that long ago? That long ago, 1937. That's wild. Long Cause there's some profound stuff in there. That's what I'm getting at. The whole book is about manifestation, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Without saying it, like it's a spiritual book. Yes, it's a business book, but I always tell people, especially now, like being into spirituality, because so many people are like discouraged or, you know, not interested in the conversation about money. It's like, no, it's riches in chocolate. It, don't think of it as riches in, in, in money, like thinking grow a meaningful life, you know, replace it for whatever. Um, anyway. Right. So I was down in San Diego. What's that? Right. I was just saying, right. Like it's in the thing about rich and money in our society is that it feels like there's a lot of stigma that gets attached to it of negativity with, oh, like, you know, money's the root of all evil kind of comments, which mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it can be used for evil, but it's one of those things that you're, you know, taking a very small subsection of what it actually represents and trying to categorize it to fit your narrative in a way. Totally. And a good, um, fun conversation is speech being the root of all evil. <laughs> that, going really back to ego. telekinesis. I would say more ego is the root yeah. of all evil. In a, not, ego. I mean, that again, I'm probably doing the same thing. I think there's a healthy ego, but that certainly has, that certainly carries out more e evil than I would say money does because money empowers people mm -hmm. too. Yeah. You know, money is a, funny thing it's definitely got a lot of different ways you could go about that conversation would well, love to sure. hear just because this was something i was uh on the hotel where was i i was at a hotel and money's like something i'm trying to redefine my relationship with right now it's one of those things i'm trying to you know rework in my mind because i for sure had a scarcity mentality around it and i'm getting away from that but so when i was in cairo we were on the top, the rooftop of a hotel at a pool and we started talking to this guy from Britain and he had houses in Spain, in Australia, in Britain, and I think one other country. 
And I'm like, damn, like, you know, this dude's doing well. And so, you know, I kind of asked him, I was like, you know, I know this is going to sound weird because he's like, a, he was like 70 years old. He said he retired like 30 years ago. I was like, it's going to sound weird, but like, what's your relationship like with money? And he was kind of like taken aback by it. Like, he didn't really know how to answer because it's not something that I don't think a lot of people think of consciously. Um, but without giving you his answer, I'd be interested to hear what your answer would be to a question like that with how you view money in a sense. Like what's my relationship to money? Yeah. Yeah. Because I've started seeing kind of things as, you know, we have relationship to food, we have relationship to money, we have mm -hmm. relationship to significant others, our parents, da, 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 da. And you've cultivated, it seems like tremendous amount of wealth over, you know, your, what would it be the last 10 years of your life? So Mm -hmm. how would you say, if I had to define my relationship with money, how would you put that into words? Yeah, that's uh, I I struggle um, with that as a lot. You know, um, I recently heard something. Um, I forget exactly where I heard it and how they uh, articulate it, but it was something like um, when you make a lot of money and you're not really you do have more of like that scarcity, which most of us do mindset, like you're quick to spend it. And that's me. Like I've always been the guy that pays for everything, like for friends and everything. They're like, no, 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 stop. You always pay for it. I go, no, no, I got it. I got it. Or, you know, um, consumerism falling into buying stuff I don't need. And the idea of what I heard was kind of, cause you feel like you don't deserve the money almost. Um, so when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's so interesting. And then the other side of it too is when I'm feeling in lack, which by the way, my business has been down 80% since the lockdown. Um, so the past couple of years has been a struggle. Um, you know, we all have different struggles, but, um, yeah, it, it, I have my own things currently that I'm working through. Um, and it's, it's a business that I've wanted to move away from. So I'm not trying to actively grow it. I'm looking at it as an opportunity. Having said that, I will, I will buy things or go be a part of things and not let money be the excuse. I will intentionally spend money on things without how do I say this? Um, knowing that money is like an energy and that the outer world is a reflection of our inner world and that, you know, like attracts like law of attraction, all this type of stuff. And that what we put our attention to is where it flows, all that type of stuff. Right. You know, I believe in all of that. Sometimes uh, I will like intentionally buy something that I know I can't afford and I won't buy it just for the sake of buying it. Like recently I got into guitar. I spent about 800 bucks on, um, a guitar and an amp, you know, not, not that much, but for something that like I'm just messing around with and brings me a little bit of fun. And I played all the time for the first three weeks. And now two months later, I barely ever pay play anymore. You could be like, Oh, well that wasn't like the most conscious purchase or, Another example, I just spent three grand on a couch and my budget for a couch was like five to 700 bucks. And then I was like, all right, well, three grand, like it, that seems stupid to spend that on a couch, but you know, I'm going to show that it's kind of like a gesture of like, I'm not 
holding on to this fear state and I release any, um, I'm, I'm blanking for words to be honest here, but I think the listeners and you know kind of what I'm saying. It's like when you look view it more as an energy and you don't hold on to it with that clingy energy and you don't have uh, and you're not using an excuse not to do something. I'm deciding if I'm going to go to an event in later May that is going to be more than I can afford right now. It's very expensive, but it's soul development and it's going to help me so much. And anytime I invest in myself, it always comes back tenfold. Um, I also am a huge fan of communicating with my guides. There's a book called Ask Your Guides by Sonia Choquette, and she explains all the different types of guides and how to communicate with them. And just last week, you know, I, I rarely ever do this, but instead of like, you know, putting down an intention or goal or, you know, working with a dream box or a manifestation type thing. I straight asked my guides for a specific sale from a specific client and it came exactly what I want. And I, you know, a lot of times we have these miracles, these synchronicities that occur, these signs, and we're like, well, that's not enough. Um, So I have a new prayer to them that's going a little bit deeper in terms of a sale for money. And it also talks about how I'm going to use this money and what it's for and everything. And that it's also part of me really believing in the magic, you know, if, if you can make this work. So we'll see uh, how that goes. Um, I'm also releasing attachment to that, but that's one thing that I got from Napoleon Hill. I created, I wrote a book in 2018 called the written goal, the mindset behind reading your goals, the mindset behind writing down your goals and reading them daily, something like that. And I came up with this process after ranking, uh, reading Think and Grow Rich that every November I would set my goals and I'd create a goal poster and a goal statement and all this type of stuff. I didn't know anything about vision boards or manifestations or affirmations at the time. And I would print out this big goal poster and at the bottom, it would say, in return for this money, I will X, Y, Z, you know, and then I'd write it down. And I think that's so important what Napoleon Hill wrote about in talking about in return, like the sacrifice, what are you going to do with it? And part of what I'm talking about now, when I say the prayer to my guides is that this is to help me have my cup be full and not come with any scarcity mindset, no stress, anxiety, because I am being of service. I am doing uh, two men's circles a month and I teach yoga for free. This is free. I do it uh, to be of service. And now as I get into keynote speaking, talking about soul life balance, I want to be able to put all my attention into this new business of keynote speaking so that I can help people find more soul life balance and raise the collective consciousness of humanity and really attack mental health awareness straight on. So it is to be of service and the money part of it isn't so I can go spend $3,000 on a couch that I don't need, you know, and there's whole question of needs and wants here. It's about the comfortability. Not only does that couch create a more harmonious living situation in my house. And when I do play, pick up my guitar, things like that, right? Like it, it's going to help me to fill up my own cup, to feel happy, to feel joyous so that I can be of service. So that's kind of like my very long winded, um, 
summary of how I look at money. Hope that answers the question. Yeah. And I find it interesting too, because a string of thought that I heard in there that I've been trying to view is like the idea of, I don't want to say spending money just to spend it, but spending Mm -hmm. it with the intention that you realize the abundance of it. So therefore you're not going to hold on to it. And it's interesting to me because I see it in the lens of almost attachment in a sense where, for example, there was a statue that I saw in, in where was it? In Egypt. And I was looking for a red granite, Anubis kind of seated, seating in a seating, (laughs) Anubis sitting down in a seated position which was like the position that Kings were displayed kind of on the entrances to their tombs. So I was like, damn, if we can find an Anubis in red granite sitting like this, I'm down, I'll buy it. And what happened was, is they were looking, I was looking all over Egypt for this and it doesn't exist. (laughs) I I can't find it anywhere. (laughs) But what they ended up finding was, was this incredible statue. It was probably two feet tall but absolutely beautiful. It had like gold inlet around the eyes. It had kind of like a Ruby outlet. They had hieroglyphs kind of carved into the side of it. And even one of the hieroglyphs talked about how, like it was talking about how Anubis was giving his power to Ramsey the second. And the King Ramsey the second was like, for some reason he was calling to me that entire trip as well. And hmm. he comes down to the price of it. He's like, I don't know why the guy got this statue. The price is insane, blah, blah, blah. I was like, all right, well, tell me what the price is. He's like $40,000. <laughs> I kind of laughed. <laughs> I was like, dude, I can't, yeah, right. I can't afford that. You know, first of all, they think everyone from America is rich, like rich, rich, like, like fucking Bezos status for some reason. 40 grand. Get out of right. here. Right. And well, yeah. haggling is a huge part of that, like culture. So, you know. Mm-hmm. What I kind of found out later is that if I would have said, so let me just tell it in the stride. So I'm sitting there looking at it. I'm like, like this thing's fucking beautiful. Like it's resonating with my soul. I'm like, dude, this thing like has me. Right. And I'm sure he saw that too. And I'm kind of looking at it. I'm like, dude, I can't afford this. Like I'm talking to my travel guide, the tour guide. Cause he speaks obviously Arabic. He knows the people. And I'm like, man, like the most I could probably do is like 800, maybe 900. Right. Dollars. And I'm like, I don't even want to tell him that because I'd be rude. And so he's like, well, just tell him and see what happens. So I, I tell him 800 and he kind of scoffs it off, walks away. And then he says something to the tour guide in Arabic and walks past. And the tour guide said, like, you know, if you had 10K or like 11K, I could get it for you for that price. And the thing is, is I would have. What does that mean? $10,000. If, if you had $10,000, he could get it for you for $1,000? No, no, no. He could get you for 10K or 11K. Oh, did I pronounce say that right? Okay, got, yeah, it, got, yeah, yeah. got it. If yeah, I would have said like le- or in that $1,000 range, he would have been able to get it for like 10 mm-hmm. to 11. And I kind of sat there and like tried to like lower my emotional state and like kind of connect with, you know, higher power, higher soul. And a part of me was telling me kind of what you were saying, where it's like, you know, kind of just spend it as this like almost donation per se to the universe to say, Hey, mm-hmm. I understand that money's abundant. I'm looking at the statue that's resonating with my soul, you know, and it would be sitting right here in front of me right now, resonating with my soul had I purchased it. And, but then there was another kind of side of me that came in and it was the side of, 
well, you said that if you found him sitting, then you would have bought it. And I was like, you know, so it became this level of like discipline versus listening to maybe my higher self, I would say. And I'm still kind of trying to process it or trying to think about it because to me, it's like, well, you know, had I bought it, maybe it would have empowered me to do something to make back that 10K or bake back that 12K in order to kind of pay for it. Does that kind of make sense of what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I totally get what you're saying. And, you know, I invite the listeners and yourself too. It's just kind of like, for me, what comes up is it's all relative because that $10,000 to you might be 500 or $1,000 to me or someone else, right? And for me, like, I think my limit based off the way you're telling the story would be maybe $2,000 tops, you know, probably closer to a grand. But because when I hear $10,000, this is like kind of what my book's about, Soul Life Balance and the masculine, the feminine archetypal energy and yin and yang and all that type of stuff. And, you know, the masculine here would be the structure and, and, you know, the actual like writing down paper pros and cons, whereas the feminine, the soul is more feeling into it. Right. And you can feel into it on a certain level, but that's where spiritual, spiritual bypassing comes in where people are like, Oh, I'm just feeling into my guides, you know, or I'm feeling yes, energetically, it will come back to me, you know, all that, which it's in my opinion, that's all BS. Like you need a balance of both. So it's, I like how you went about this with both, you know, you felt into it with your soul and then also in the masculine, the life side, like it's like, okay, but does this actually make sense? I don't want to just spiritually bypass. So I don't feel like there's a one size fits all answer because it's very subjective. And that gets into my business stuff, talking about subjective and objective things. But um, yeah, it's, I, I, I do a similar process to you that, so yeah, I, I feel what you're saying for sure. And as you were kind of saying that I completely forgot until you were talking about this, because I think after that occurred, you know, I was in the van and I, I couldn't get this thing out of my head. Like I was thinking about, I, I could still just see it sitting in front of me right now. And you know, what it actually kind of reminded me of, or made me realize is that I had been, and I have been very much in my, let's say feminine energy with just go with the flow. You know, I'm just going to be in this creation state. I'm just, you know, I kind of basically went to Egypt on a whim you know, and it was kind of that enlightenment of like, well, look, you, you said that, you know, if he was sitting, if he was doing this, then, you know, you would buy it. He's not sitting. And that was kind of like when that masculine kind of took over. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I guess it's, it's really fascinating to kind of see that balance even in work. And it really kind of had this epiphic moment for me of like, well, you know, we do need to find this balance. We need to come back to this structure that you, I have actually, I exercised for the first 26, 27 years of my life, you know, and maybe this last year I've been a lot more, you know, kind of in that, you know, feminine energy of just like, you know, just feel what you should do next. And, you know, it's one of those yin yangs, like you were saying, and the pendulum's trying to find the middle ground of like, okay, well, you know, you had this extreme masculine energy for 26 years. Now we're this last year, we're kind of swinging back to feminine. And now, and now I even, I feel like that was a structure of like, okay, now I'm starting to find that balance, that middle ground of, okay, where is the level of balance? Where's the level of masculine? Where's the level of feminine? 
Mm -hmm. And one thing I'll add too that came up for me is like in yoga, um, one of the yamas, niyamas teaches us about uh, non-attachment and and non-possessiveness, right? So if I were to be looking at this statue and be like, oh, this is going to make me feel good. This is going to be a representation of money. This is going to be a memory of Egypt or put so much into it to justify it. Then to that point, like it's like almost catching my thought pattern there and be like, eh, no, and like my examples of the $3,000 couch and the guitar, like, I mean, the, the examples like that, I feel good about, like, it's not like I'm putting everything into it because it's totally affordable. You know, are they kind of, more in the range of questionable, debatable versus needs and wants and, you know, really worth me doing that? Sure, maybe a little bit. But for me, where my finances are, if I were to say spend $10,000 on a couch, you know, or that statue, which is way more meaningful than a couch, obviously just using you know, examples that would really put me out of my comfort zone where now I would have almost like an external pressure. And if you have like any pressure that's going um, aligned with it, then that might be a good indication to maybe not do that purchase, you know? So this is a interesting concept that you bring up now is the idea of that pressure, right? Because there's a portion of me that sort of believes that if you kind of put yourself in that uncomfortable or pressure situation where I don't know, for example, you find yourself in 20 K in debt or something. And you know, the 12% interest is going to hit next month. You know, I, a part of me feels like that it would be a catalyst for having some sort of divine idea come to you that would help you absolve that debt or create some sort of program or create a product that, you could turn and flip super fast. Do you feel like that has any legitimacy in the idea of kind of this creation, this balance of pressure and comfortability? Yeah, I, I totally feel and understand what you're saying. Like I'm the type of person I say this all the time. Like when my sales are through the roof, I coast and I enjoy it and I'm doing well. And then, you know, the best entrepreneurs and salespeople go pedal to the metal. That's not me. I'm like, I want to enjoy my life. And then this has always been the case. Then I put myself under pressure where it's like, oh, fuck, I, I got to get going on sales again. And then it's like, I know I can make it happen. So I very much am in that kind of cycle and finding my own balance. But also now I'm in the midst of a career transition. So it's a little bit different. But my my point is more putting it into a possession, you know, and it's one thing if it's cumulative where your spending habits are, you know, increasing because little things like you're starting to door dash more and it's more expensive than cooking or eating out or, you know, anything like that to buying like multiple possessions that, you know, you reasoned for each of them and they all made sense to you versus buying one huge thing where it's like putting all the energy into that one thing because it, yeah everything is um everything's got its own unique situation and everyone's a little bit different and they got feel into what works for them but for me i was more just speaking on the putting it all into one object because yeah i definitely put myself in situations where i like to, I work better under pressure and it's something that I'm working on because like who wants to 
live that way anyways, you know, like we don't want, I don't want to live that way. It's the way I brought awareness to that pattern in the past couple of years. And I've taken the past two years to not really work. You know, I've worked as little as possible while making the least money I've made in years and just being of service and doing a deep dive of spirituality. And now I'm climbing out of this deep inner work to come back into business in a more harmonious state. So for me, it'll be interesting to see what this looks like as I start to build this new business and am more mindful that I don't want to put myself in that position yet. At the same time, I don't want to go pedal to the metal and just increasing my speaking gigs to make money for the sake of making money. And this is what soul life balance is all about. You know, I'm totally on board because I see the issue broadcasted a lot and maybe it's social media. Maybe it's just the old dying way. That's a propagating it but the idea of like hustle culture to me hustle mm-hmm. culture seems I, I mean seems toxic I, you know to use that word it seems like a unsustainable you're not going to enjoy life type of broadcast that is getting sent out there it's this idea of if you work hard you'll be rewarded like you should be working hard you should be you know, only getting six hours of sleep and maybe it's not that, but you know, you should be working, you know, 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week. And it's like, you know, it comes back to your whole soul life balance thing where to me, life should be almost more of a play. And this was something that my psilocybin shaman kind of talked about all the time where, you know, things should just be light. Like everything should just be fun. You should just enjoy everything you're doing. It should almost be childish child-esque child-esque in every element of your life if you're recording a podcast if you're building a business if you're you know trying to romanticize a woman like all of it should just be in the spirit of play in a sense yeah i agree you know i think uh hustle culture is very toxic and you know, Gary V is kind of in my reality is at the forefront of that. And there's a lot of things that Gary V does that represents as good and he's doing good in the world. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like he brings a lot of toxicity in and others as well, you know, and I, I don't believe in hustle culture. I think that's a huge part of the problem problem. And similar to you journeying with psilocybin, my first big psilocybin ceremony for healing really showed me how like we don't need to work and we don't need all these industries and so really you know yeah i used to be very much into hustle culture i was before but now like that is um repugnant (laughs) never used that word before (laughs) you know yeah it's interesting you bring up gary v because i i find him to be so fascinating be for two reasons number one what you're laying out like I, I agree that it's he's like short term. He's like, I'm going to do as much as I can every single day and grind, grind, grind. But then he talks about how he's patient in the long term, which I think is a beautiful sentiment of, yeah, be patient in the long term. Like if I were to look back on the last 10 years of my life, I'd be like, dude, it's absolutely insane where I'm at today. And to think that I'm at this exponential growth point and the next 10 years, I'm like, I couldn't be more excited for it with regards to being patient. Now, mm-hmm. and he also, the other thing that he really talks about is empathy and like, you know, kind of giving aspect. He talks about how, you know, his entire social media is almost set up and it's pretty true where 
you don't really need to go to him for anything. He basically gives you everything that he believes right on the forefront. You know, really he makes his money, I guess, off of just either what he's building or kind of like on the back end stuff where I see like a lot of influence. I don't really like the word influencers where a lot of coaches, content creators, creators, yeah. Everyone's an influencer, first of all. (laughs) Oh, I like that. That's why I try not to use that word because I feel like it's, it's like, dude, you're, you're taking away from the individual, but regardless, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, we're content creators. They're, they're kind of, and I've started doing this myself where you kind of set up a, a coaching program for people. And it's, I guess it's helpful in a sense, or, you know, you set up a digital course that can be helpful, but at the same point, I just want to be in the situation where I'm just kind of just like, Hey, just, just take this. Like, I know this is going to help you, but then you have that little, that little itch of fear of not making money on it, not having the money and, and maybe I just need to give away the the digital course and just stay with the coaching because the t- coaching is the thing that actually takes up my mm. time. I don't know. That's something maybe I'm still mm. thinking of. Yeah, coaching is tough, man, to be honest. Like um, I remember when I first got into coaching, there were a few times when I was just like washed away, washed over with gratitude and like, you know, that one slow tear coming down of just like, open heart love and appreciation for like this new path that I'm on that aligns with my mission. And then as it progressed, not seeing results from the people I was coaching because the majority of them aren't actually doing what, you know, we were, what I was teaching and working with them on. And, you know, they weren't frustrated. They were fine with their place and I'm making less money coaching than I am selling swag and it requires so much more of my time. And all of a sudden it went from being rewarding to a burden. And that's kind of when I stopped coaching. Um, so I've done a lot of different courses, uh, masterminds, accelerators, one-on-one coaching, a lot of different things in just a couple years as I've been in the midst of this career transition. And I've just found for me where I'm at in this current moment, like I don't want to sit on Zoom calls with people taking up my time, especially living out here in Santa Cruz, which you know a lot of people think of uh, California as like sunny and especially the beaches where I live. The majority of the time, it's overcasting, and you never know when you're when you know the sun's going to come out or when it's going to be a nice day or if the waves are going to be good. And I want to have the flexibility to have the schedule to be like, oh, cool. I'm going to pop out in the surf right now or get some sun. And the worst feeling in the world to me is having even a podcast that, or, you know, a call or a coaching call, anything that's on my calendar that keeps me inside when I want to be outside. So for me, like, I do try to have the majority of what's on my calendar be podcasts. Um, I'm not doing coaching anymore. I don't really take many calls. Um, majority of what's on my calendar is podcasts, and I enjoy being interviewed. I enjoy interviewing. Um, but yeah, coaching for where I'm at right now is just not something that you know I'm feeling great about. And then I've had so many business coaches over the years, and my best business coach was my first one. And, you know, he was great and he was very old school. You know, he's probably like in his sixties now and he used to work at like HP and he was an exec at some Silicon Valley companies. And he really helped me with my first business, my main business. But as I've hired coaches to help me with my coaching business, um, 
I just haven't found many good ones. Uh, so coaching is just hard on both ends. I currently have a new coach that I just started with two days ago, helped me with the speaking business. And so far he's been excellent. And I firmly believe that it's going to continue this way and the program's going to be great. So I'm super stoked on that. But yeah, being a coach, hiring a coach, like it's tough, man. I, I, I feel what you're talking about for sure. That's interesting to hear for a couple of reasons. Number one, cause I don't, I know I don't want to get pigeonholed, but part of me maybe thinks that it's one of those things I need to experience regardless of that. What I was thinking though, more so was with regards to past coaches that I've hired. I know that I, let me see here. I had a business coach once and it was kind of just like, they gave me a blueprint to do drop shipping and that was a complete bust. I did hated it. I absolutely hated drop shipping. So that was a bust. The next one would have been, I talked with a guy about being a podcast coach. Like I wanted someone to help me with interviewing and all that stuff. And the first one I got was basically like, oh, well, you have to basically do everything different. You you have to start cutting up your interviews. You can't have two hour long interviews. You know, you, you're, you have to do this. You have to do that. I'm just like, all right, man. And never talk to him again because, you know, it, yeah. But then the, he doesn't yeah, get it. Exactly. I was like, you, I was yeah. like, you're not listening to me. You're telling me like what you've done and what's worked for you, which is great. The most recent guy that I've talked to and he, I've only brought him, I've only talked to him once. He listened to a couple of my podcasts and talked to me and he's like, and the thing that was so great about him was that he, he listened, which is excellent. But the next element of it is he's like, he kind of gave this level of, I don't know. Like I was telling him how, you know, I enjoyed listening to Joe Rogan and how, you know, I had so many friends who listened to him because of how long the interviews were and the ones that were longer, you wanted to listen to more, which is sounds so weird saying it out loud and in actuality. And I explained that to the guy and he's like, well, you know, maybe you're right. It sounds like you have good intuition. So follow that. So then it came back to like, well, why would I hire someone else if my intuition is the coach of on its own? <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, um, a lot there and taking podcasts specifically, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. And you could go by kind of what the industry teaches you. And that's like consistency wins, right? And one of the things that I am a believer of is when you first start, it's a good idea to start with smaller episodes that are lower the barrier to entry for someone to listen, which could be either 15 minutes if it's tips, you know, it's that type of podcast or something like yours and mine where it's like a interview, maybe it's 30 to 60 minutes. Having said that, I get where you're coming from and I am a believer in the riches are in the niches and it's extremely, you know, narrow focused that you're like your audience and who you're going for. And in a lot of ways, you're, I do believe that you're right, that you will create more raving fans than I will because you really are going deep with them and building like a deep relationship. I haven't tried that myself. Um, it's interesting. So I'm curious to hear from you as well, like how it's going and keep in touch with you and see how it goes as well. But then the other side of it, you know, that's kind of like to your point of why would you hire a coach if you have the good intuition and all that, you know, sometimes it's just 
have someone to bounce ideas off with. And that's why I think informal masterminds are really, you know, potent. And if you want to put together a mastermind of other podcasters or other coaches or something like that with a few friends and have like a WhatsApp group or an Instagram thread and meet like once or twice a month, I think that would be more than enough than having a coach, you know, and that's why doing your own masterminds with friends and colleagues, like could be a really good way to go about now the other side to coaches and specifically this guy that, you know, kind of helped you to be that sounding board. That's nice to have someone that is a coach and can be that sounding board, but then also there's going to be times when you have specific questions and specific things of how to do something. Now you're well established in your podcast, so I don't think you would specifically get as much out of it as someone who is launching a podcast would. You know, I have a a webinar, a free webinar. It's about 30 minutes on um, podcasting and then I have a podcasting course as well. And I really, I really feel like that's my greatest product. Um, I have a lot of different courses. I mean, a lot, five, um, I have a few different courses, but the podcasting one, like one of the things that I'm really passionate about there is like at the beginning, and I haven't looked at this in a while. Uh, like I said, I haven't been coaching or doing things like this in a while, but one of the things that I have people do at the very beginning is decide if it's for business or pleasure. Because, you know, we all know about your why and how your why is your anchor. But when you come to make the, when you have these important decisions to make, like maybe it's investing in a coach or maybe it's deciding if you're going to be a two hour show, even though everyone tells you you're crazy and you're wrong. If your why is for it to be pleasure and it's not business related, and it could be a hybrid, of course, but if it's more of that pleasure, then screw it. Like, you know, do the two hour long, um, be release episodes when you want versus having that pressure of getting an episode out at the same day of the week, every week. Um, you know, so I think that's so important. And uh, another thing too, that my, my friend spent $20,000 on a coach and part of what they were doing big part of it was, um, releasing a podcast. And I remember this one was a couple of years ago and I've had five podcasts over the years done easily over 400 episodes on the various podcasts, but I've always known because, you know, they teach this, this is like one-on-one stuff in podcasting and I've experienced it as well iTunes can take anywhere from, you know, a few days, a week to four weeks to approve your podcast. So when you are launching and you say, Hey, I'm going to launch my podcast on May 1st, 2022, you better submit it to iTunes well before that, because the last thing you want to do is go to iTunes on the last week of April to submit to iTunes. May 1st comes and then, you know, your podcast isn't in the directory and same goes for when it shows on iTunes, it can take up to 24 hours. So if you're releasing it on Mondays, then set it to schedule for Sunday. So little things like that, that this coach didn't tell them. And this was before I was podcast coaching. Like I helped a lot of friends and whatnot because they'd come to me for questions. And I was like, I can't believe he didn't tell you that. Um, So there's just like little things like that where even, you know, having the discernment of 
knowing if someone's a good coach or not. So yeah, all this to say, I know that's kind of all over the place, but yeah, coaching is so hard on both ends. And part of it is that everyone wants to be a coach these days. And I, I do believe that like a piece of paper doesn't make you a coach. You know, I think, um, I understand the argument of why people are like, oh, I want to work with a coach that's gone through XYZ coaching school. But at the same time, like, yes, there could be terrible, there could be bad people or bad, not bad people, but not the best coaches who don't have like some sort of certificate, but the same goes for people that went through a training program. I've had and seen people that have gone through legit training programs and have gotten feedback from people that, that, Hey, they, they're not that good, you know? So, I mean, it's more than a piece of paper for sure. Um, and you got to tap into your own intuition, use both, um, your intuition and your masculine skill set to make a decision, you know? Yeah. That's a great way to put it. And to touch on your piece of paper, I know this is something that screams at me with regards to this is doctors, Western doctors, like, don't get me wrong. They are very intelligent people. They're, they went to school for seven, eight years and they know what they're talking about. The problem I have though, is that the way that the structure kind of set it up was to not really teach them to almost look at different elements and to diagnose the person. It's more checking off a list of items to prescribe something that might cover up the issue as opposed to doing this like deep psychological dive of figuring out why, you know, there's a rash or they have a certain ailment. It's like, no, just take antibiotics, kill all the germs and, and let's see if it works kind of deal. And so to your point about the whole piece of paper thing, I, and you know, whether it's a good thing or bad thing, I don't know. But with regards to kind of the, in the science industry, even, and the, you know, coming back, uh, you know, I went to college, I was a computer, computer engineer, got a bachelor's of science, in computer engineering. So I'm all for science. Like I totally get it. I see that there's value in it, but <laughs> the, where I'm starting to view the world now is that so much of it is psychologically based. You know, you create and, you know, manifest for the buzzword out there, you create things that are intangible by the scientific method that becomes a part of your reality Yet, you know, probably the majority of doctors, the majority of scientists don't really believe in that mystical thing because there isn't this, we don't have a physical measurement for it in a sense. Yeah. I mean, that's something I'm really passionate about. So I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying. And the other thing I'll add to that too, is it is so hard to figure out what to do when it comes to your health when choosing not to go the route of western medicine because you know you can work with a naturopath you can work with a homeopath and you can work with all these different type of healers and energetics but like it's really just like trial by fire you know and trying to put your own team together and you know maybe your natural path tells you to go to someone that says theta healing to help with something there or cranial sacral or an acupuncture. And then you're trying all these different things. And like they all, those doctors don't really doctors the don't really talk with each other either. So they don't really get like the whole picture of what's going on with you. So it's, it's something that is super challenging right now 
And I think it does come back to we are our own best teacher, our own best guru, and we are our own best healers. And it comes back to our own in- intuition. So easier said than done. But, you know, I do agree that just taking a pill or, you know, treating the symptom and not the root of the problem is a huge problem in Western culture right now. And there's not really a clear answer, unfortunately, on the best way go about alternative routes, you know? I do. And there's a book I'm reading. Well, there's two books I'm reading that kind of touch on this. The first one is called the Celestine Celestine Prophecy. Have you heard of that book? Mm. I feel like I just bought that. I'm the type of guy that like buys books and collects them and then, you know, is reading 10 books at a time. (laughs) I'm the same way. Yeah, my it's, audible it's library bad. has like um, six and there's some of them are like halfway or like red. <laughs> yeah, like it's it typically get to like 30, 50 pages or something. And then, you know, it's rotating of five books and then I don't read every day either either. So it's not really like I make that much progress unless you find like those few books that really captivate you. Um, you said it's the celestial prophecy. Is that it? Uh, something. I think it's like Celestine, Celestine prophecy. Oh, so, uh, Celestine. Yeah, I'll look it up because um, I'm curious. I feel like I might have just heard and or bought that book. It's super good. It reminds me of, oh, I'm going to forget the name, but the book by Solo. Uh, I'm not going to remember the name, but it, it, it it basically creates a story around the deepest truths that we like kind of know as humans in a sense where it's, you know, it's Mm. essentially fiction in air quotes, but the truths that kind of go throughout it are super real. Like the idea of coincidences, the idea of childhood trauma, the idea of, you know, all these different things kind of get encompassed into this book. Well, in maybe like the third or fourth chapter, and I bring it up because it, it talks about kind of human history. And it talks about it in a sense where what happened was, is, you know, if you look at it from this, like, you know, lens of, of science and mysticism, what happened was, is Mm -hmm. back in the medieval times, we kind of basically closed our eyes to blame, to blind faith and said, okay, God has all the answers. Let's believe in God. This is how we'll get to heaven and, you know, and stay away from hell. And there was a lot of you know, deep core truths in there. The problem was, is that, you know, the ego comes in the church and some other entities start to drive at, you know, say that I'm your barrier between God and people kind of start to get confused by it. And they hit the certain point within like the next 400 years where earth kind of crumbles down and said, well, the social structure says, okay, God or the church doesn't have all the answers. Let's go find the answers essentially. And it does a much better job than what I'm doing here to describe it. But so as those people were going to going to search or this leads into like the, let me see here, what would it be like the 16, 1700s? It becomes, we need something to quantify the material world because if we can no longer believe in God until people figure this out, then what are we going to do? So from like the 1700s to almost present day, let's say roughly 2000, science came in and said, okay, we'll figure out the world from a scientific method. And so we'll quantify kind of the way materials work. We'll quantify the way, you know, atoms behave, maybe not even atoms at this point, but genetics and, you know, all these fascinating things. 
Well, what's happening now, and this is kind of what that book outlines, well, not even the book, but like this one subsection of it, is it outlines how we're starting to kind of turn that corner again in reality and saying, wait, we're starting to figure out the spiritual nature of things. And then we have the old school way of the scientific method, which (laughs) it's funny to call it old school, I guess. (laughs) Some people still hold on to that. (laughs) But now we're at this almost intersection point of how do we merge these two and how do we bridge the gap between this physical reality and this reality that almost we each individually project onto the environment around us. I dig that. I dig that. Yeah. What comes up for me is like the Hopi prophecy or Thoth's prophecy and things like that for sure. Yeah. Very similar. And I, I guess I don't know them exactly, but I'm sure there's some alignment with them. Yeah. And I, it's funny prophecies coming about, um, a friend sent me, uh, I don't know. It's just a audio track a, a website. I forget what it's called, but there's like no information about the author or anything. It's just like a website with uh, about two hours of audio talking about this woman's um her prophecy. I forget what's called, but it's called something prophecy, and it's very similar to like what you're talking about in the Hopi and in Thoth's prophecy, and also like um at, we're kind of like at this conjunction of going two different ways. And I know in Missing Links, um, Greg Braden shows the cave drawings. I forget where they are, but the Hopi prophecy on the cave where like one is going like from severed from spirit and the other is going like with spirit essentially. And it kind of sounds like what you're saying too. And that's what this lady said in the prophecy as well. So it's, uh, we're, we're definitely in the midst of a massive awakening and it, for that reason alone, it's an exciting time to be alive for sure. It's definitely got to be one of the most exciting. And then the yeah. other book that I was thinking of as I was kind of rambling, it's called uh, Supernormal. And I think it's written by Deepak Chopra and Dean Radin. Dean Radin. And that book, I'm only about halfway through <laughs> as we've been exploring. Right. But they essentially take kind of the yogic practices, which I know you mentioned in your soul life balance. Uh, But it's things like, you know, how people are able to, you know, live and absorb energy through the sun and not need to eat. And they're able to just get all their energy and vital resources from the atmosphere around them to, you know, astral projection to, you know, lucid dreaming and all of these different things. And what, they're trying to do in this book. And honestly, I'm halfway through and they're still just like laying out the foundation for it because these are, you know, I know Dean Radden is specifically is like a very, um, you know, doctor kind of thing. And they want this to be a legitimate thing where other scientists can be like, Oh, that's what it kind of feels like is it's like for scientists for them to kind of just set this groundwork is like, okay, we are trying to mix the scientific, you know, method and combined it with this mystical world of not being able to eat or, you know, what are like some of the other crazy shit, telepathy or telekinesis or remote mm-hmm. viewing. Mm-hmm. It's like they're trying and I really should get back to it, but they're really trying to find a scientific method to be able to explain mysticism because it's almost left out of the scientific method. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, it's funny how 
we look at science and we say something can't be true because science says, you know, that's not true. And we're looking at science that's been around from, you know, maybe it's a couple hundred years, you know, or whatever the case may be. I mean, I always go back to when I was growing up, Pluto was a planet and now it's not a planet, you know? So <laughs> it just something as simple as that. It's like, why can't we just keep our mind open? It's not that, you know, science, like I'm not the biggest science person. Um, and I, I believe in science, you know, it's not like I don't believe in science and I just throw, throw it out. But I think we put too much stock in being like, well, this is the way because science proves it. And it's like, well, no, that's also one of the keys to, you know, being a spiritual seeker, in my opinion, is always questioning, you know, and for me, it's questioning my belief on that as well. Like, oh, why is this? Why is that my belief? I'm also open to changing that, you know, but I think when we get stuck in these patterns of this is the way and it's this way because X, Y, Z, that's just narrow mind thinking that, you know, we're being closed off from the true potentiality, you know, I, I do. And you know, there's so many examples that parallel exactly what you're saying with regards to science being off. You know, the original model of the atom was a, you know, it had the nucleus in the middle and it had the electron circling around it. And I think there's a proton as well. And apologize, it doesn't make me sound very scientific. I can't remember that. <laughs> um, but now with quantum physics that they're starting to realize is that it's no, it's actually the nucleus in the middle and it's an electron cloud around it of probability. And so we don't really know where it is until somebody observes it. And the probability of it being in a place depends on who is observing it, which just adds this whole extra layer of complexity of how are you able to even reproduce things if the outcome of the experiment is based on the person that is looking at it, you know, and even to expand that more, there's even more examples of science being wrong where they do stuff like date the pyramids or they date, um, mm. they date, uh, like the Sphinx, but then they find stuff underneath it that suggests that it's been around thousands of years longer or, and what I always kind of go back to is, you know, they're for all of time, majority of time, maybe not all of time. We believe that humans were at the center of the universe. And then, you know, around the times of Ta Socrates and, Plato, they said, wait, no, the earth is going around the sun. And then people got killed for saying that. And then the next thing you know, they're like, oh shit, okay, maybe the sun's the center of the universe. And now it's like, well, no, we don't even know where the center of the universe is. It's, it seems to be just this giant bubble, this endless infinite bubble. And so to your point, it's like, you know, science is almost at a level, the just the best understanding that we have at this moment, but there's a level of needing to be open for it to change in the future. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 Agreed. Yeah, it's crazy stuff, but I guess that's not, <laughs> that's not in your realm of, of scientific literature. You're more in the business aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even just hearing you talk about like pro protons, neutrons, uh, atoms and all that stuff. Like I, I, I don't get, it. you know, I never have. And I think my brain just kind of shuts off on things that I don't get and just kind of gives up. And I, that's kind of the way I was growing up with science. My brain would just shut off and be like, uh, and not following. Um, but yeah, you know, so I'm, it's not really my thing for sure. Well, so then, but, so then I guess what were your like favorite classes in, in high school when you're going through it? 
my motto was a lyric from a Leonard Skinner song. Never really cared for school. Always a golden rule. Um, <laughs> that was literally like my motto. Um, I mean, I, I liked English. I liked writing. Um, I think I won some like award something, you know, I got a Sammy Sosa beanie baby in seventh grade, um, for like winning and winning that for writing the best essay for something I don't remember, but I always, I always liked writing. Um, so liked that and didn't love it, but liked it. And I, I don't remember. I hated math, didn't like science, thought history was boring, which now I love history. Right. You know, um, and what else is there? That's kind of English, you know. That was about it, right? Oh, PE. Yeah, I think PE was a good one. The other subjects definitely are. counts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, so the yeah, no, no, yeah, yeah. So then, where I guess where along kind of this like awakening journey. So if like we're going back to your story with how you were talking about. Sorry, give me a sec here. Let me recalculate. We had. We had where you were at the campfire. It was like the welcome to the club DUI situation. And then you had the, the shoe, the shoe situation where you, Oh yeah. Chico Chico feet. feet. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, where at this point kind of, are we like, were you still in this mindset of like, I need to, I need to build like, was your, were you quote unquote toxic masculine with your discipline? Like kind of, how was that structure? Yeah. I mean, when I launched Chico Fee, it was in 2011. I lived in San Diego. Then I moved back to Northern California in Chico. I had a couple uh, interns working for me and I had just actually, I hadn't even walked the stage yet. I was about to walk the stage and I had interns working for me. So that was a trip. Um, and then I had some good opportunities in Chico and then I eventually moved back home to Silicon Valley and I started doing sales for my parents' business doing office supplies and, you know, I was terrible at yet clients were still buying swag. And then a few years after just like being terrible at office supply sales and hating it, I went full swag and I started my own thing. Um, and then, yeah, around that time, probably like, you know, it's probably like 25 or something, maybe a little bit younger. I was on the board of a couple nonprofits, went through a few leadership programs. I started to listen to podcasts and, you know, kind of, I love this Jim Rohn saying you're the average of the five people you hang out with most. And, you know, it was probably around that time because uh, you referenced that earlier that I started to get into personal development. Um And then in 2016, I looked around and, you know, I was tired of not getting respect as a guy in branding in Silicon Valley when everyone, you know, was in tech and startup, you know, like I'm just, I differentiated myself as not just selling swag, but also like building websites, doing video production, graphic design, but still just wasn't enough. So I looked around, I saw some friends and different people doing, you know, YouTube and, and podcasts. And that's when I decided I want to start a podcast. I'm grateful that my friend Pal Vinder and Sergio were on board because Pal was our AV guy and Sergio was my co-host. We started to do a, a movers and shakers show. It was called What Up Silicon Valley. Quickly, we were partnered with some legit organizations and interviewing big time movers and shakers. We reformatted it to be a media company with five different podcasts on the network. And then um, 
that's when I got into working with VAs and freelancers. And that's when I shifted my business to be employee based to freelance based. And it's been like that ever since. And that's been like the greatest thing I ever did in business to move away from an employee based business model. And, um, yeah, I started dating this girl. We were together for four years and on and off. And she was cheerleader for the Niners and my favorite team was the Niners. So that was cool being also being connected with the execs of the Niners, like having field passes. And then, you know, there she is like cheering right in front and seeing like Aaron Rodgers and, uh, and Clay Matthews. I remember that Packers game and just different um and different experiences that were like really cool, you know, and amazing. And then that relationship came to an end after breakup number 50, give or take. <laughs> um, and that sent me into a numbing depression and it was never about the relationship, but it was just like what the catalyst was to get me into spirituality. And that's when I found ayahuasca in 2019. And then after during journeying with ayahuasca in 2019, I went head in on spirituality with blinders on the content I was consuming, the relationships, the people I was hanging out with, everything was around spirituality. And then the pandemic happened shortly thereafter. And that's kind of um, been my path, you know, around July of 2021, I realized that I was at the 12th step of this hero's journey cycle of doing a deep dive of spirituality and it's time to finally write the book soul life balance that i had envisioned back in 2019 and bring the medicine to the people and that brings me to where i'm at today that's awesome and so yeah. something that i think you glanced over would have been your ayahuasca you know experiences would what called you like where were you in your life was that around the time of your breakup and like kind of how did that all play mm -hmm. out? What, what called you to it? You know, where did you do it? Yeah. I mean, I love Joe Rogan. I used to listen to Rogan so much, but for whatever reason, kind of like what I said earlier about like, when I don't understand something, I just like glance over it. And the times he talked about ayahuasca, like, because I didn't know how to pronounce it, I I just kind of didn't pay attention, I guess, because in 2019, 2018, I got into meditation and a friend came into my life and it's kind of like the movie Limitless with Bradley Cooper when like this random guy comes into his life and tells him about this nootropic that changes his life. That was this dude, Billy. He told me about psilocybin, like microdosing with psilocybin. And here I am like, man, I used to do mushrooms all the time in college and in high school. Like I love mushrooms, but I'm a professional now. Like, no, I'm not doing <laughs> that. He's, uh, he's like just microdosing. He's sending me articles about Silicon Valley execs microdosing. I go, okay, okay. And then he started telling me about how he did ayahuasca and how like it changed his life. And I'm like, ayahuasca? And he <laughs> explained it to me. And that was my point of bringing up Rogan because you'd think I would have already known about it. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, like that sounds terrifying yet so fascinating because kind of like what I was telling you earlier about the stories um, of like, I'm not from this planet. Like a lot, a lot of my childhood, you know, I felt very spiritual, but I wasn't, you know, 
able to kind of lean into that energy. So I kind of just like cast it away. So, you know, hearing about ayahuasca, there's just this like deep inner knowing of, oh, I'm going to do that one day. But that sounds terrifying. It's good I have that in my back pocket, but yeah. I'm not going to do that. Like I thought about it, but I was like, mm, no, life is good. I'm not <laughs> going to do that. And then, um, yeah, I didn't know about intuition or whispers or synchronicities back then. And, in in I think it was, I think it was March, February, March of 2019. I had numbing depression where like I was only sleeping a couple hours a night and I had plenty of energy during the day, not energy of like, boom, boom, let's go. But like energy of like alert and aware, like that numbing feeling when you've experienced that lum- numbing feeling, you know what I mean, where it's like, you're just alert. Um, it, it, even without sleep, it was weird. But then, um, somehow I found myself at a cacao ceremony, not knowing what that was and just being like, whatever, sure. I'll try this. And it was first time ever being in a ceremony atmosphere, doing breath work or, you know, just all the things spiritual. Like it was really, it was kind of a lot to take in. And the girl I went with, um, she talked to the facilitator afterwards and she goes, Hey, I'm going to do ayahuasca in a couple of weeks. And she started talking with her about ayahuasca and we're driving home. And I go, you're going to do ayahuasca in a couple of weeks and you weren't going to tell me. So, you know, I followed her journey and it was like absolutely transformative for her. And this other dude that told me about it, like he was the only person that I had known that did ayahuasca and I didn't even know him well. Like I knew this girl really well. She was a good friend. She had a podcast on our net, our network. Um, and I went to college with her. So when she, you know, I trusted her and I followed her journey and I remember we went out to dinner and I talked to her all about it. I got the contact information from the facilitators, emailed them right away. Next thing you know, I did breath work with them, a breath work journey a week later, literally felt reborn. Like I thought I was having a seizure and was going to die. And afterwards through breathing through it, felt reborn. It was the most, even till this day, like that journey alone, no medicine was as transformative or more, not or more, but in a lot of ways, almost as transformative as doing ayahuasca for the first time. And then a week later I did ayahuasca and that's a whole thing get into, but that's really, I remember then of the night just repeating in my head over and over again, like it's so simple. It's so simple. And it blows my mind now, like being in the spiritual community how often people say it's so simple because I had never heard that before. And it's funny that we all come back to like those same words at the end of a medicine ceremony, not everyone, but a lot of times like that's one of the things you hear when someone finishes a medicine ceremony, like kind of a smile and a giggle at the the cosmic joke and being like, it's so simple. And it's just weird, you know, that, that those are the words that came to me having not had that in my field. Um, but yeah, that's like a brief overview. Well, I don't think I've ever heard it's so simple. Is that just like with regards to life or the human experience or taking? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, sure. All of it. Yeah. All of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All of it. You know, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I don't think it's a common expression of being like, oh, the human experience and this like the universe. Oh, it's so simple. But like when you get to the end of a medicine journey where like you get there, you know, there's a lot of different things that people might say. All I'm saying is I've heard it at least three times, which for me would be a lot that someone else said like, 
the same words that I came back to the same three words, you know, like I, I see a lot of people do Bufo. Um, that's another story. That's the most powerful. Is that they the, say it's the most powerful. Is that the frog? Yeah. Mike Tyson's toad. toad. Yeah. Yeah. Toad. Is that really burn themselves? Yeah. So one you burn yourself. That's, that's combo. combo. That's the frog. Yeah. You smoke the venom with Bufo. We could talk about that. I'm very well versed in Bufo, but yeah, a lot of times I see people coming back from Bufo ceremonies, just saying like, what the fuck? Like that's the most common expression, but like also like a, a laugh, like they get the cosmic joke, you know, you get there, but that all I'm saying is like when people do say, oh, it's so simple. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Those were the words I came back with where it's not as common. Is kind of like it's more common than I would think because it's not common, if that makes sense. Well, it's interesting because I've never heard it before, but it really resonates with me with what I was saying earlier about the idea of everything should just be play. Like this should just all kind of mm-hmm. just be for fun. And that's taken me back to your comment about how, like, why are you doing the podcast? Is it business or for personal? And it's funny because it's funny you saying that because the very first coach who, you know, what like wasn't listening to me, he also kind of said like, are you doing this for business or pleasure? You know? And so to me, mm-hmm. and it, re- it, it, it reignited when you asked it. Cause to me, I'm like, well, you know, why can't it kind of be for both? Like, why can't, why do I have to kind of like decide, does it have to be one way or the other? Like if this is all just for play and all just for fun, can't like money be for business and for pleasure, you know, can't my podcast be for business and for pleasure, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? So I find it really funny how totally. that let it's so simple kind of comes back to the, just like, guys, this is just like all for fun. And look, if someone's struggling with depression or like anxiety, I totally get how that could be triggering. Like I totally get that, but you know, you get to this place where it's kind of, it's just all light. Like it's, it's your brain making, it's the overthinking. It's this, over conditioning that we've been taught from a young age where it's it we're supposed to think more than what we need to in a sense so a few things come up for me one is um we and this is what my book is about the subtitle is igniting and integrating spiritual awakening experiences because they are experiences it's a it's very difficult to maintain that state of it's so simple you come back into this 3d experience and you have these the conditioning and the programming and external pressures and you know things that are keeping us in a limited state that's designed for us to be in a state of victim mentality and victimhood, right? And that's where soul life balance comes into play. And you're totally right. Like with a podcast, yeah, why can't it be both? Like everything comes back to play. And this is, my take is a little bit different because it's like almost slightly spiritually bypassing because we are here to be a human and play the game. And the way I show up for something that is for pleasure versus business is different. And even though I'm trying to bring more soul into my business and whatnot, I think the biggest differentiator for me is like when I do a soul seeker podcast, even sometimes in the intro, I'll be like, you know, I do this strictly out of being of service of, of my heart. I don't make any money off of this, you know, the transparency of saying that, or even how I show up, like how I mentioned to you now I am weekly with soul seeker, but for the longest time I'd be like, you know what, this is adding more pressure to, to me. Um, 
I don't like having to be weekly. I go, why am I doing this? Because to your point, I was like, this should all be about play. And I, it is a little bit hybrid. Like, I mean, for the most part, it's pleasure. It doesn't really, it's not really a lead funnel or anything like that. It helps build my brand. So you could say in a little way it's business, but where am I going with this? Anyways, um, yeah, it's just, I show up differently and, you know, I relieve those pressures of like needing to be a top podcast or needing it to funnel to, to a, a coaching program or whatever, you know, it's like, I'm doing this because this is my own therapy, right? When I have guests on, not only am I learning from them forget about the fact that other people get a benefit from this. Like, this is so cool that I'm benefiting from this and getting, I have these amazing conversations and learn about things like EMDR or whatever the case may be. I'm also getting to share that with so many other people. And a lot of times just having these deeper conversations is very therapeutic for myself. And it's just something I enjoy. And I don't look at like a business. If I were to look at it as a business, I would show up very differently you know, and I think it's kind of like the intention behind it and it's going to be different for everyone. You know, for you, it might be different for a listener. It might be different. It's all good. That's just what works for me. And I think it works for most people because we do have like a different way we show up if it's, and I'm not saying show up in terms of like, like, all right, I'm going to give it my best. I'm not talking about that type of show up. I mean, kind of like the intention behind it of where this is going. You know, I'm going to approach it with just a little bit of a little bit different if it is business. You know, I would kind of bring my guests on that would lend itself to my business more. Like one of the top secrets to monetizing a podcast that doesn't get talked about is know what your offer is, know what you're selling, right? And then you can invite guests on that will be potential clients of what you're selling because it is so hard to actually build a following on social media and listeners and everything. If you bring guests on that are potential prospects and buyers of what you have to sell, then you just built one of the biggest relationships. And to show you that my first podcast, I made $60,000 net profit in 18 months um, because I was interviewing and I fell into this. It wasn't the intention, but I was interviewing movers and shakers in Silicon Valley. My personal brand at the time was Swag Sam, company of Swagworks. I sell swag bring a bunch of swag, give it to the client and not the client, the, <laughs> the person I was interviewing in who became right. the client because they'd be like, and they'd be like, thank you so much. And then my co-host would be like, yeah, his, he's swag Sam. He does swag for a living. And then they'd be like, oh, why don't we buy our swag from you? And I go, I don't know. Why don't you? And they go, I'll connect you with the buyer. And I go, okay, cool. And then I get an email introduction. Next thing you know, I'm closing deals. So for me, like, you know, that became, oh, like this is revenue generating and I'm going to show up differently. You know what I mean? Yeah. And there's a lot of things here to break down. The first thing that's sticking out to me. Right. The first thing that's sticking out to me is <laughs> it's kind of the irony because I've what's happened with me has kind of been the opposite where I've brought on a hypnotherapist and then purchased a hypnotherapist session from that person. I brought on an Akashic records reader and I purchased like a package from her to learn how to read the Akashic records. So <laughs> I find it kind of funny because to me, I feel like it's a 180. I've done yeah. that too. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had someone on my podcast last last Friday who, as soon as we were done, and not in a slimy or salesy way, like it was totally good. But you know, he invited me to some coaching thing that he's got going on, thousands of dollars and whatever. And you know, it made sense based off of like what I'm doing. It wasn't slimy or sleazy, but like we do run into that where the guests start to sell the host for sure. It's so funny. So that's funny. <laughs> they, I mean, you yeah. know, they weren't selling me at all. I was just like, damn, like this is resonating with me. Like I need to do this kind of thing. So I find that fascinating. Totally. But then even if we kind of, I really want to dive into this because this is something that I'm dealing with where you know, I have a digital course and I am offering a coaching program. It To me, I'm still trying to kind of play that line of like, you know, what level do I just not just give it away and just assume that the universe is going to, you know, give me what I need, whether it's money or something else from a different resource, because I'm viewing it from the sense of like this digital course, it's it's basically exactly what I did to heal the trauma that, you know, I've had in my life. Um, you know, granted, I kind of got this through psilocybin, but I truly believe you don't need any of these drugs to actually do the healing. You just need to know the steps, which is what the digital course is. Now, That's cool. Yeah. And and so I think it's it's really I think it's really well done and it lays it out in a way, at least I understand. <laughs> but but that's my thing. It, what's the website for what's the website for the listeners and for me? Uh, traveling to consciousness.com. It'll be on the first page. That's where the court. Yeah. Traveling to consciousness.com. All right. Sorry to interrupt. No, it's you. totally cool. But that's my thing is like part of me just wants to give it away and just be like, guys, like just just mm-hmm. take this because I know it'll help. But then that, you know, the the money mindset is like, well, how are you going to make money if you're just giving away, you know, your product for free? I see my time as being another thing with the coaching. Like to me, I think if I'm giving my personal time, that's something that I should be, you know, charging for. But if it's just this digital course, like part of me just thinks like I should just give it away so that people are using it. And it's not just, you know, it's because it's, it's what we all should be doing or needs to be doing, if that makes sense. Well, doesn't that come back to the question of um, business or pleasure, wouldn't you say? It does, but then it goes back to why can't they be the same thing? Well, they can't be because you're giving it, if you give your course away for free, it, like to me, not the definition of business, but like the difference of business and pleasure would be money aspect. You know what I'm saying? Right. Does that make sense? Right, which I'm on board for. So let me think about this. No, this is, this is fun, bro. This is fun. So like your podcast is giving things away for free, right? And the reason why you would want to give the course away for free, what is that reason? So that more people would have access to the, so more people would have access. See, I don't know that that's entirely true. So it'd be more accessible to everybody so that anyone who came across it would just be like, Oh, here's how I can, you know, find my life purpose and just click on this and it'll, you know, solve, it won't solve all my problems per se, but it'll give you the steps to solve your problems, you know? So I think I just found your course. Is it $63? That's it. Okay. So what I would say to you is if you're selling this for $63, you're, you're giving away for free. If this is something that is going to transform people's lives and you firmly believe that, 
it's one eleven my time by the way but um sixty three dollars anyone can come up with $63 if they are going to put the work in, you know, if your course was 500 bucks, I mean, especially if it was like a grand or two grand or something like that, I would hear what you're saying, but this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how I was coaching so many people who weren't putting the work in. If you give it away for free, most likely they're not going to put the work in $63 it's still debatable if people are going to put the work in because if it's someone like me, I might buy that for at 63 bucks and be like, oh, this sounds dope. Like, yeah, all well-intentioned and I definitely want to do this. But then to me, $63 is, you know, a, uh, almost the cost of a DoorDash dinner for myself, <laughs> you know, like one night. So it, it's like, I might buy that well-intentioned and I've done this plenty of times with different things in this price point. And then it's like, eh, whatever, I forget about it. You know, if it were $2,000, I know when I'm signing up for this, that it's like, oh no, I am committing to this. So in a lot of ways, I would argue, I would debate with you that by not charging more than you are and essentially giving it away for free, you're doing a disservice to people because a lot of people aren't actually going to follow through with it. And this is a mindset shift of money. You know, like we feel like we shouldn't be profiting off of money. And like the mastermind I'm a part of fit for service, it's about being of service. What does of service mean? Right? Like to me, being of service and teaching yoga and not getting paid to teach yoga is being of service. However, even if I were to get paid, I'd still feel like it was being of service. The reason why I chose not to get paid is because I'm teaching for two studios, one of which, and first of all, yoga is the number one integration practice for me. Um, When the lockdowns came, the studio owner started doing outdoor yoga so that we could still do yoga. I know we all know how many yoga studios went under and the amount of tenacity that this entrepreneur put into sustaining the business for the community. I respect so much. And for me to take, you know, what is it going to be 25, 35 bucks per class when right now I'm building an audience and I usually have two to five people showing up, like just keep it that 25, 35 bucks isn't going to do anything for me and not that's going to do a lot for them, but like it's being of service, right? And the other place I teach is called Outdoor Yoga Sankers and they do headphones. She has a huge investment on all the headphones. She's she's schle- she's older in her 60s and she schleps all the headphones in onto the beach and rakes, gets there an hour early to rake it and clean it and do all this stuff. And I mean, it's the same with that. Like if I take like 20, 35 bucks to teach a class, it's not moving the needle for me. But at the same time, like my men's circles, I am taking money for, and I'm not making much off that, but, and I don't really know why I'm doing that. Not I'm getting sidetracked here, but it's kind of this concept of being of service. And I feel like the block for you and, you know, I could be projecting, but it sounds like, you know, it's the money part, right? But if you can get past that and see what I'm saying, because I firmly believe this, that if you are to were to charge more, people would show up differently and you'd be able to impact more lives. You know what I'm saying? I do know what you're saying. And it's a really interesting way to look at it. And 
money certainly is a, there's certainly a couple blocks there <laughs> that I've been working through with regards to scarcity and whatnot. But that's an interesting way to look at it. And it's funny too, because there was, like, I'll DM people who follow the Instagram account and be like, hey, like, if you have any questions, shoot me a message. And one kid, you know, had a pretty long conversation. And I was like, hey, like, this is stuff I answer in the digital course. And at the end of it, he was like, you know, how much is it? I told him it was $63. He's like, oh, that's not that much. Like, you know, I'll consider it. And maybe to your point, like, there's that level of like, well, if it was more, it's, it's almost like telling you how much it's actually worth, right? You're setting this, this mm-hmm. value of it. Like, if you say it's for free, then it's like, oh, okay. Like it's worthless. Like, you know, it could have the, could have the keys to happiness inside of it. But if I'm giving it away for free, people are just like, oh, like, you know, it's a sham. Like there's not, those aren't the actual keys in there because if he was giving me the actual keys to happiness, that would be like at least a couple thousand dollars. Hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, exactly. You nailed it. Like, I mean, it just looks different. Like when I, to be honest with you, like when I looked at the course, that's why I was like, Oh, is this it? That's 63. Cause I thought for sure you'd be charging at least a grand, you know? And it, that's the way I looked at it. when I saw it was 63 bucks. I was like, well, you know, it's, it, that's the, that's the way that a lot of people are going to look at is the value. Oh, well, it's 60 bucks, you know? Um, so the invitation I'd have for you is kind of sit with it a little bit more. And the other side of it too is are lead magnets. I'm a huge fan of using and utilizing lead magnets. And, you know, the idea of the customer journey, especially for coaches, um, is reverse engineering and looking where you want them to end up at the destination, then working backwards. And as you work backwards from them arriving at this course that you have, which to me is very much a high ticket course. I even see like the way you broke down the value and all that type of stuff and the things inside here. This is definitely worth easily two grand, not knowing for sure, not seeing the content, but based off of the way you're positioning and talking about it, easily two grand, if not more. Right. So if we want to get them at that high ticket value, and that's the ultimate destination, we work the steps backwards. We know that the first point uh, the first touch point will likely be your Instagram or your podcast. Right. But then after that, that what's in between that and the high ticket, well, you're going to want a lead magnet, something that is for free, that could be a PDF download. It could be, you know, five tips, um, video or whatever, you know, something that's telling them the what, not the how. And then from there, you could do a low ticket offer. I typically skip this and I go straight from a lead magnet to the high ticket. Maybe it's a booking a coach call. But if you did want to put something to be that bridge, that's the good place to have like the $50, $60 price point something and still keep it easily consumable that matches with that price point and then continue the journey to lead them to the high ticket offer. That's the way I see it. No, I've, have you read, um, what's it called? It might be called a dot com secrets by Russell Brunson. Russell Brunson. Yeah. yeah, I was thinking about that book. Yeah, I, I read part of it. It had a lot of like these similar. <laughs> I read yeah. part of it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Full circle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, No, but that, yeah, that, that book kind of broke down a lot of the things that you did. You were just laying out. And, you know, if we kind of wrap this back to a spirituality perspective, I think you're kind of really hitting it with the, you know, the, the there's a block there of some sort with the money because to me, it's just like, I'm at this place where I just want to like, and maybe it's a little bit of that idealistic 
that that feminine energy that's still like mm-hmm. over idealistic just like i should just be able to help people and give people stuff and you know whenever i need to receive stuff it'll kind of come towards me this almost call it euphoric call it like a little bit too much i don't know floaty maybe in floaty energy in a sense yeah it's 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 the gray area of spiritually bypassing right well you keep okay so let's dive into this you keep you keep <laughs> saying spiritually bypassing and i'm are you familiar with that I term? I am not, and you're using it in very interesting spots. So, could you break it down for me? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to refer to my book, um, and I just need to find the section because I have the book right here. And I, it's funny. I could tell you the story and the short version. It, eh, I'd rather read it in the book because I felt like it Is was. Is this in Soul Life Balance? Written pretty. Well. Yeah, it's in my book. Yeah. Here it is, page 150. You mind if I just read it? Please do, by all means. All right. So this is just like a little short section, but spiritually bypassing. Here we are. It's a page 150 out of 300 page book, by the way. You wouldn't know it if I didn't write this out to you, but this section on the topic of spiritually bypassing is actually one of the last pieces I wrote for this book. This book has been nearly three years in the making. I've done countless mind maps and outlines as I dreamt up the contents of the book, and I write in a very non-linear fashion. I follow the topics that call to me in the moment, and from time to time, I jump around from section to section writing, quote unquote, out of order. Of course, I have a thorough outline to guide which sections will go where, but even then, you never completely know what will come through until you take pen to paper, or in my case, fingers to keyboard. I've taken some time to reflect on why I kept avoiding this topic of spiritually bypassing. And what came to me was that in many ways, I was actually spiritually bypassing, writing about spiritually (laughs) bypassing. I tell myself any number of reasons why I wasn't ready, playing games in my mind and negotiating with myself. I love the concept of spiritually bypassing and perhaps I, I twist the meaning in my awareness to apply toward my behavioral patterns just as much as I do with my spiritual beliefs. For example, I use the concept of spiritually bypassing to observe how I will reason with myself as a way of getting out of something or justifying something due to its relation to my beliefs. Spiritually bypassing on a more woo level is when we specifically look at our spiritual beliefs and use them as a reason, excuse, or justification for a way of being in or behaving. Some common examples are when people say things like, everything is perfect and everything is meant to happen exactly as it does. Although I do 100% believe in both of these statements, you may notice within yourself and others when these statements are actually coming from another voice, a voice not of your highest and best good. It's another page and a half or so, but I think right there kind of... um, it's just a cool story of like how I was spiritually bypassing writing it. But yeah, it's essentially using your belief system and using the more feminine and yin and soul and spiritual side to come up with a reason. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? No, it does. It it was ripping me to my core at some points you were reading that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it funny. totally makes sense where, you know, if, it's, it's actually a really fascinating co- topic because- you know, I mm-hmm. totally can see how it plays out in exactly what you're saying. It's like I'm, I'm almost most like foregoing or giving my masculine energy to my feminine, if that makes sense. It's almost like you're you're taking 
the construct of money, right? Which or discipline and just saying, oh, well, like if my soul wanted me to do it, then I would be doing it kind of thing as opposed to creating yeah. that discipline structure or trying to set appropriately set the digital course. You know, it's, it's not. It's like what we were talking about with your statue where it's like, oh yeah, I don't have 10 grand, but I'll open up a new credit card with uh, 0% interest for 15 months. And I don't have to worry about paying it for 15 months and I'll come back with uh, the money will come back to me, you know, right away. So it's fine, but I have this other thing. So yeah, I'm just going to do it. Like I'm, I'm calling in, I'm manifesting it. Actually that what I just said is way more than spiritual bypassing because I add in the masculine with the credit card, right? Like that's the logic and the analytical side. So that's bad example. But if you're get that $10,000 and be like, oh, I don't have this money, but I'm going to manifest and it'll come back to me because that's how the universe works. To me, that's spiritual bypassing. But the way you were describing how you went about it earlier was not. It's just like this thin gray area. You know, it's a thin line and it's a gray area. And I think I see so many people get caught in spiritually bypassing that just everything is love and light and everything, you know, and it's just like, that's when I kind of just, I gag a little, you know, I'm like, okay, well, roll my eyes or whatever. Well, I, and that is something that might be an element of like the toxic almost portion of spirituality in a sense where, mm, because well I've seen that myself where it's almost, they're, they're too much in their emotions and they're too much like just like we're saying floaty or just too much like air underneath them or too 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 predicated on their emotional state and it just it keeps pulling them all over the place which is like this element of needing to come back to the masculine to have some sort of structure that you can stand on and have this level of discernment that you're able to mm. explain these emotions in a way and, and you don't need to act on them. Like I was saying with the, with the statue, like my higher self, the, whatever you want to call it, the uh, spiritual part of me, I was still having that balance of masculine energy to be like, dude, no, you're going to put yourself in a financial situation. That's going to create a lot of pressure. It might create this, you know, bring you to a place of fear. And then you're doing a creative thing with your podcast. So how are you, how are you planning on, you, it, it makes it so difficult to create from a place of fear. It's almost impossible. You know? mm, so true. That's another thing I talk about in the book as well. And I'll, I'll leave it at this, but you know, there's so much talk about Dharma and spirituality or, you know, your mission. And then whether you're in, to spirituality or not, a lot of people align with the concept of having a purpose, you know? And what I've found is that myself include so many of us that are going through an awakening process are like really trying to find our, our purpose, our Dharma, our mission. And it becomes like this external pressure and this clingy, needy, almost fear-based energy of, of finding it and grasping out, out for it and just like building more anxiety. And it's like, well, wait a second. Most of us in spirituality believe that the outside world is a reflection of the inner world then wouldn't it make sense that we need to embody self-love and fill our cup up first to your point of not creating from a fear state? Maybe, maybe the only thing that we would need to do, if we need to do anything at all, is just truly love ourselves. Because if we could embody self-love and the outer world is a reflection of the inner world, well, is that enough to change everything right there? 
You know, I mean, embodying self-love. And that's something in my last podcast episode, um, we talked about where we were talking about the idea of, you know, I feel like there's gotta be a different word for manifesting because for some reason it just still feels off to me, but, uh, where, you know, the whole process of it essentially to just summarize is, you know, set your intention, visualize, let go in a short three-step process. Well, in order to let go, it involves you almost comes in this law of assumption with, if you've heard of Neville Goddard, he kind of was a big component of that, where it's like, just assume that you already have it. Well, the whole point of assuming that you already have it is that you're in that state of love, right? Because the reason we want anything is because we think that it'll bring love or joy or happiness with it. But in actuality, it's something that we need to already possess that being joy and love in order to get this physical or material thing in the world. And so the reason I bring that up is because what I uncovered with this girl is like, you know, I was realizing that like I, or the past person I interviewed is that it was like, there's a level of me that like, you know, needs to let go, learn how to let go. And that was something I've got a story for that. And from Egypt as well, that is fucking great for that. But the point being is that, you know, they came up with this mantra of like, show me how I can be okay or how I can express love without my desire. And I found that just so empowering because it's like, we know whatever it is like in, maybe you can even attest to this, that even if it's money, even if it's a relationship, even it's, you know, some physical ascertainment, some achievement being on Forbes 30 or being on the Silicon Valley 40 under 40 list, like that it brings an instantaneous dopamine hit. But at the end of the day, it's not Mm going to fulfill you with over everlasting joy. That's something you got to figure out how to harness without physical attributes, without physical material items. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It took me a while, but I realized that, you know, I was an addict and it was to the dopamine and, you know, I, with respect to addicts, I have many friends that are recovering addicts and whatnot. Um, I do believe that anything can be addiction and that most of us have experienced some form of addiction. And for me, it was being in this cycle of chasing goal after goal and, you know, only to feel more empty. And it was for that momentary, you know, dopamine hit exactly. I've said the same thing, just very similar the way you put it. Um, And one thing that's been reflected back to me is like celebrating your wins more and celebrating more. And it's like, maybe, you know, like my book became a best-selling, number one best-selling book the first week it went live a couple months ago. And I definitely celebrate that, you know, and um, I don't know how long I can continue to celebrate that, but now I'm going through almost like a postpartum of like a loss of direction after birthing this and, you know, switching the energy from creating to promoting, which I prefer creating rather than promoting. So to me, it doesn't fully resonate as like the way to combat that as like celebrating. Um, But yeah, you know, the big thing for me personally, when you talk about goals and dopamine is like, yeah, that's been my my story and I fall into the same trap even and you know, that's what soul life balance, uh, the concept is all about. There's nowhere to 
end up. There's no destination. It's a constant balance. It's a constant practice. I don't believe anyone is perfect, let alone myself. And I'm not trying to say like, you know, I have something that is going to automatically help you feel better. Like the whole idea is the sign of the infinity. You know, if you take the figure eight and you flip it to its side, you get the symbol of infinity and it has so much to experience to teach us about the human experience. It's got its highs and its lows. Yet it always comes back to me itself exactly where it's at, unbroken. And that essentially is the human experience. So now for me, when I am in these lows, I just come back to that. And I'm like, okay, this is kind of like the counterbalance to the high. Like what comes up must go down. And the thing is your floor increases every time you experience like a low. So you are raising up and it's just finding these these ways that resonate with you to really feel it, to process it and be okay with it and get through it. You know, I do. And I've heard a lot of, you know, I've experienced so much of that in my own life. And what it kind of reminds me of is it comes back to the whole, you know, when you talk about highs and lows, it kind of reminds me of the whole yin and yang where you're, you know, kind of trying to find this balance between masculine and feminine energy. Do you feel like it's possible to find a balance between the highs and lows to a point where it's, I don't know, steady, but at least at some, at some level where you're not having a drastic high and a drastic low, right? Because if take this to a drug addiction kind of story, right? If, if you have a drastic high, then you're going to have a drastic low. So wouldn't it be, I guess, in a idealistic form where you're only getting like, small increases so that you're not having, so that you're only having small decreases. Yeah. I mean, this is something I've thought about since I was a kid, at least junior high, because I've always known for myself that I have high highs and low lows. And I don't, I think to a certain extent that maybe most of us, um, I just feel like my lows are really low and my highs are really high so much that people tell me that I have like puppy dog energy, um, when, when I am in a high and, you know, there's something wrong when I'm not that way. Um, and it's hard to just be even. So it's something that I've been playing with and practicing. And a lot of the book explores this too. And, you know, it's funny you bring up the yin yang because the logo for my book is an infinity with the yin yang in it. So I definitely think, um, I'm very much into this concept of uh, archetypal energies of feminine being the yin soul and masculine being the yang in life and also realizing it's, it's got its flow to it. So, you know, um, there's no one thing. What my book is about is offering a ton of different modalities that I've explored people with my podcast. I've explored myself and that are out there and it's kind of like choose your own adventure. So there's not like, you know, a few sentence answer I can give you um, other than just being with it and not resisting it, you know, choose your own adventure. (laughs) I like that. I like that (laughs) because that's basically what we're doing here, right? You get to, you get to choose whether or not, well, maybe we don't, because I know there's still some resistance to the idea of free will, but yeah, I know some people mm. resist it, but, and I had a really interesting conversation about it with some chick where, you know, I, I was articulating it was probably an extreme example where it's like, you know, you can take this glass and shatter it on the floor right now if you want. And she's like, no, I can't. 
I'm like, yes, you can. And she's like, no, because I understand the social repercussions of if I do that. And I'm like, yeah, there's social repercussions, but that doesn't mean you can't do it. Like you still have the free will to do it or to not do it. And so that was a really fascinating conversation in and of itself. Um, I don't know how we got down that rabbit hole. We were talking about choose your adventure. I, I, I love that conversation though. It reminds me of the scene with, um, uh, Neo and, and, um, the Oracle, you know, with the vase, like, uh, you know, when he trips it over and she goes, Oh, if I told you that was going to happen, would you still have done it? And it's like, Oh, that is interesting. And I, I constantly think about if we actually have free will and I don't know the answer and I'm, I'm not, I'm, I don't have a firm viewpoint on that. And that's one of those things I just love to, to talk about and and think about reflect on it contemplate and just stay open and curious because that that is a fun topic for sure so the way that i i guess (laughs) this is so funny because to me i use this argument to justify if there was free will but now that i'm thinking about it it could easily be used to justify that we don't have free will but well I don't know. I'll articulate it as if it helps the free will cause where, you know, you've done psilocybin, you've done ayahuasca for healing modalities and purposes. The way that I've always viewed using those things is that it shows you something that needs to be healed in your life that has been, let's say, plaguing you or, you know, something that you're still trying to integrate or heal, whatever you have. Now, Obviously, there's the integration phase, which I know you point out in your book, like it's, you know, the work is all in the integration. All the psilocybin does or all the magic does is say, hey, here's this thing that you need to integrate. So in my opinion, that highlights your ability to have free will. Like if if here's this magical pill for it's the closest thing we have to mm-hmm. magic and it says, look, here's this thing that you need to fix. This has been causing these issues in your life and you can fix it easily by doing this, this, and this. I argue that you have the free will to implement that. You know that it's going to be better, but you still have the choice of if you do it or if you don't do it. It's not like, it's not, you get them going with that? Yeah, I totally get where you're going with that. And for me, it's like um, this idea of it, you know, I'm not sure that this is a simulation. I can't get behind that. This is a simulation in that it's technology. And I don't think it's because of my ego, um, and not wanting it to be just like technology. What resonates with me is the Pixar movie soul and the way they describe the human experience. That's the way I think about it. Not all of it, but like a lot of it, you know, where there's the great before. I don't think of it as the great before by any means, but you know, we could look at that and see how they choose different, uh, personalities for the souls that are incarnating. And the other thing is how they go through, the um the portal to enter earth you know we choose as souls soul contracts we choose when we enter earth so that we can have the different numerology and as astrological and human design factors that are going to carry that align with um the experience that we're looking for right so when i think about what you're saying where i have the choice to do X, Y, or Z. And whether it's with medicine or not, just choice in general, like I have the choice in every situation. What comes up for me is like, oh, 
maybe this is a simulation in what the sense of the word of what does simula simulated mean? You know, it's almost like predestined, you know, maybe you know, all this was predestined and I can think like I can choose to pick up this pen or put it down, but I was always going to choose to pick up the pen, but it was, it's a, you know, it feels like I have that choice, but it was already going to happen anyways. Um, that's the more, that's kind of the way I think of it. And like I said, I don't have a firm belief one way or another. Um, I think it's fun to talk about for sure, but yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, reminding me of a couple of things. The first thing is, is that like, there's an idea, I guess, or, uh, you know, I guess if, if it's all predetermined, then theoretically, if you could see every atom and every molecule of the Big Bang, there would be a mathematical equation, right? That would that would show you, or you would be able to, let's say, calculate every single instantaneous moment up until this point, and quite frankly, you'd be able to see into the future, right? Like if you were able to see the, I guess it would take a quite a bit about amount of uh, computing and all that stuff, but. It's like if you were able to take in every single element of existence from every single atom, in a sense, of the entire universe, right? Then you'd be able to calculate out like where we're going in the future. Like you'd have your own crystal ball, essentially, of the past and of the future. The other idea that was coming to mind is I had a conversation with a girl named Tiara um, earlier in this podcast, and she thinks that, and she brought up, and I, you know, maybe there's some truth here is that free will and destiny are kind of the same thing, you know, kind of this idea mm -hmm. of it, it's the same, I guess, which is kind of mind breaking where it's like kind of what you were saying is that free will is an illusion mm -hmm. and everything's destined, but for an order for you to get to that destined, you have to believe that there's free will. And this also, <laughs> this comes back to what you point out in the, in your book with the, the matrix. And I always love the matrix as a example where she tells Neo that he's not the one he's like, she's like, you're not the one. Mm -hmm. And because had she told him that he was the one, he wouldn't become the one, you know? And it's, I don't know. It's one of those things that's like, it's kind of mind breaking when you think about it in those, in those regards, I guess, like maybe we're not supposed to comprehend it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, have you read the book or listened to the book Sacred Contracts? No, I haven't. Do I need to write that down? It's one, yeah, it's one of my favorite books. I'm re listening to it now, and I recommend to listen to it versus read it okay. um, because she's so engaging the way she uh, tells the story or not the story, but yeah. Anyway, it's about soul contracts and she talks about like Helen Keller, for example, and how like how it went down essentially of that soul choosing to incarnate to be blind and deaf and choosing the other souls it would incarnate with. And it, she does just such a incredible job of explaining a lot of things that we're talking about now. And, you know, I stay curious and open. I don't look at it as like, this is the end all and this is, these are absolutes, but a lot of what she says resonates with me as true. And I think that's important to check in with yourself, um, whether it's something we're talking about now here in the podcast or just in daily life and see, do an internal check to see if it resonates as true for you. 
But um, it, it also goes back to what I said earlier about the DUI I had. Like, I do believe that, and I think I said something about this earlier, like part of me feels like I was supposed to have that DUI and that was supposed to happen. Then, you know, that would be like, not having free will that I always was going to do that. And we could all, all obviously get into alternate realities and timelines and, and things like that, where like one decision creates a split off of other decisions in different timelines, which that's another one where it's interesting to talk about. I don't have a firm stance in any specific way, but going back to the DUI, like I think if I choose to have this conversation and take the side of, us oh my dog's choking you okay riley she's okay Uh, everyone (laughs) it's okay she's probably just hairball um anyway um yeah if i choose to take the side of having free will then i chose right to drive and get the dui then i still think that there would be something else that would have came into my life that would have put me in that situation of eventually getting my shit together. Um, So in a sense, it could be a moot point that whether we have free will or not, it's so, it's not so much about like that actual experience of like picking up the pen or not, or, you know, breaking the vase in the moving the matrix or, you know, me driving drunk and getting a DUI, whatever, um, as it is something will happen to be the catalyst for XYZ. And that I do believe in. That I believe in more than getting so granular in the actual specific of how it manifests versus like, oh, this is going to happen to propel you towards this adventure. And I think um, Carolyn Mace, the author of Sacred Contracts, kind of speaks to that in the book as well, where she talks about it's not so much about all like the little minute decisions, but it's the more vast experiences that you decide and how those come about kind of just might organically happen. So interesting, yeah, fun conversation for sure. Yeah. And it's reminding me, oh, geez, I just lost it. It was reminding me, oh, so this so this i guess takes this to like the next level of like the whole free will conversation is and this also kind of relates to the book i'm sure ask your guides which i i think i'm this might be on my next reading list because that's a cool idea because that's something that i do is i'll Mm -hmm. you know kind of like what you're saying with the idea of what was it that i was asking them i was asking them something earlier in this podcast i forget what oh what the guides what was the what was the phrase we were talking about the affirmation Oh, show me how my life will be okay without this. Oh, so, okay. So something that I did, and this is really interesting in the idea of free will, maybe it, it's kind of similar. It's not exactly free will, I guess, but I, so I, something with me is like the idea of letting go. Like I want to become better at letting go of things. And what happened was, is this might've been a little bit before Egypt, but I was like, you know, I, I'm ready to let go. I know I'm holding too much, you know, too much strength on certain things, whether it's money or being in a relationship. And so help me like, let go, help me be able to release that energy. Well, an interesting story, and I'm not going to go into the deep details just because of time constraints and everything, but 
I guess there's no really time constraints. That's an illusion, right? <laughs> we'll explore on my podcast. We'll get you on mine, and I, I'd love to unpack Egypt with you. Oh, so yeah, yeah we'll we'll do it another time for the deep dive. I'd be honored. I've got I've got a lot of spiritual stories on that. So we'll but keep going. Sorry, yeah, yeah keep going cool. with what, what you're saying. So what essentially happened was is there's a necklace that I um, had that I got on my birthday last year from a buddy, and it was super cool necklace. Like it had a gemstone in it and a uh, bullet casing kind of like around it. And so I went through airport security with it. And this has never been a problem before, right? Like I've never thought about it, never mm. anything. I go through this metal detector, nothing goes off. And the guy's like, you know, you're not allowed to have that. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not allowed to have that. And he's just like, not allowed. And he's playing dumb with me. I know he knows more English than he's letting on, but you know, he's just saying not allowed, not allowed, takes it off my neck, takes, takes the, takes the end of it off yeah and like puts it on top of the metal detector and i just get furious like internally i start cussing him out i'm like you know how could this guy be so dumb like you know he's a security guy and he doesn't realize that there's not even a bullet in it like how could he be so dumb blah 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 like just bad and i'm realizing internally two things one I get to control my reaction to this situation right i get to calm myself down i can calm myself down i don't have to have this negative reaction and two if something's getting me this irritated, it's a trigger, right? It's, it's, it's something that needs to be healed within myself. And then I realized, holy shit, I was so attached to that necklace that the universe was like, Hey, you wanted to practice letting go, you know, here we go. Here we go. Here's your practice run. You know, you said you, you said you wanted to let go. So here we go. And, you know, it was really this fascinating process and, We'll dive into it more on yours. But <laughs> the reason I bring it up is, you know, had I asked before, I, beforehand, I asked to my spirit guides, let's say, help me let go. Like, I, I think I'm ready to let go and learn how to do that at a deeper level. Was it my free will to ask for that? And furthermore, had I not asked for that, would that event have never occurred? You know, so, so that would be where this kind of starts to expand out into a bigger, you know, environment. And you know, maybe I could have protested more and maybe he would have given me it back and maybe I could have slipped him $200, but then I would have never learned this energy of letting go because at the end of the day, I can't take this necklace with me whenever I die. Yeah, exactly. Boom. There it is right there. Yeah. No, it it does sound like you called that in for sure. Right. Right. And and so, and that's, yeah, no, I was just going to say that's the, the thing about manifesting too that I'm playing with that I mentioned earlier about like specifically saying like I'd like a $50,000 sale from this client at this uh, GP gross profit and I want I would like it to be you know easy and not and stress-free and I'm going to use it to for XYZ and like being so so specific and being like huh I wonder how this will work because you know that's um that's one of the things too, when we manifest in, you know, an intention with a medicine ceremony, like show me the totality of the universe. You know, I've had friends who have had like an intention that was basically that. And then it's been like scarred them from doing medicine again. Really? And it's, yeah, yeah, totally. So I think it's really important, um, with intentions or manifesting to, um, 
at least know what we're getting into. And then one thing I tell people with Bufo too, is like, it's a manifestation mess. And, and the thing that doesn't get talked about uh, with manifesting as much is the negative side of manifesting. And if you get caught in a negative loop, then because it's such a manifest manifestation mess, and that's going to be reflected back to you in the 3d with your senses in the external world. So yeah, it's interesting what you're talking about. Like, it sounds like what your prayer, your intention, your manifestation was all about was letting go. And then it's like, who knows what that letting go is going to look like, you know, and just being open to it. That well, point. It gets a little, it gets so. a little even deeper and <laughs> maybe I'll save it for your podcast. I, I'll save it for your podcast because it gets a little deeper of, I said, cause well, it comes back to the. I'm going to keep it vague, but I'll keep the specifics for your podcast where there was like this kind of intuitive vision that I had um, back when I lived in San Diego too. So whenever this happened nine months ago of something that would never occur again, and it triggered my letting go thing. So I wasn't letting go. It was like attached. It was, I was attached to this idea. And then after this necklace incident occurred, I was like, Oh, like I'm feeling myself, like, you know, hit me again with like another letting go thing. Well, I got hit with another intuitive vision, which was the opposite of that original vision of the letting go nine months ago when I was in San Diego. And it hit me with so much certainty that I was like kind of tripped out. I'm like, wait, hold on. I was like, this vision is literally the exact opposite of that original vision that I had nine months ago. So, you know, either A, this is actually something that's going to happen, or, and I believe this is the more powerful aspect. I need to let go of this. And if it is actually going to occur, then I need to almost exercise this portion of letting go because that's really the true test here. It's not a matter of whether or not this is going to occur or not. It's more of the fact that I was attached to this in the past. And it's like, oh, here's the next level of your attachment. Let's see what we can do with it. Yeah, that resonates. And I think that's a lot of awareness and wisdom that you bring to the vision because uh, a lot of times um, visions, whether in medicine or not, can become self-fulfilling prophecies. So I love the non-attachment that you had to it. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's adds to it where I'm like, you know, the, the second vision, I'm like, okay, I'm down for this to actually occur now, you know, but like you're saying, mm-hmm. what I was illustrating, it's like, if you're just so attached to it, then then it's not going to happen. You know, you're, you're creating more, I don't know. Like it's, it's that clingy. Yeah. Energy. It's more clingy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And okay. So this is something that I actually, a little bit of a pivot here. Um, but you mentioned it with your manifestation idea where you're like getting super pers- specific about it. I'm curious as to the idea of timelines because I've talked to people and mm. maybe this is like where the feminine comes in, where, you know, there's this idea of kind of just like, you know, it, since time's an illusion, let's say, where you, since time is an illusion, sorry, let me think this through. Since time is an illusion, then setting timelines on things is not a realistic mm. idea. However, I have read mm. so many books and like you're even pointing out where people do put timelines on things like, I'll have a million dollar business within a year or something and they have it within that year Mm. or they get super close. But I've also heard the opposite where it's like, yeah, you can add time to it, but it really doesn't matter. And I'm kind of caught in this quasi and now I'm looking at it in the terms of yin and yang 
where I'm in this quasi like, you know, I have all these aspirations that I want to happen within 30 years, but you know, I'm not going to attach it to a certain timeline. It's like if they occur at some point, great, but I would rather just enjoy the process. So where, I guess, where do you kind of fall on that conversation? This one, this one's so tough for me, bro. Cause, um, someone who wrote a book called the written goal and wrote three books in a year and, you know, just chasing success and accomplishments and being a goal setter and everything. Um, I've gone the complete opposite to no goals, to coming back to goals with intentions, mixing in with manifestations as well. So I'm currently, you know, finding a new way that works for me. Um, before it was all in my masculine, you know, all very much 3D, having stemmed from think and grow rich philosophies, which are not 3D, you know, and it worked. You know, a lot of times I would, you know, smart goal I talked about in the book written goal that I'm not a fan of smart goals, like in terms of specific, measurable, actionable, relatable, and time-bound, like making sure it has each of those. However, I think it's a good framework to use a SMART goal, but not get caught up in making sure you have every letter of the acronym um, applied. And one thing for me that's always been important before I was into spirituality was making sure my goals were time-bound. Um, I feel like from a goal setting, very much 3d perspective, it's extremely important to have them be time bound. Having said that, even back then it was just the intention. It was like, if I don't meet it, then it's fine. You know, I'm not going to hang on to that and and be shame myself if I don't meet it. But like, now I know the amount of time that should go into attaining this and I can reverse engineer to create the objectives to attain it. Where I'm at now, I don't have any current goals. I don't. Um, I don't even really have any big intentions. Um, I mean, I have... I have intentions to get into public speaking. I have some figures worked out, some numbers and some rough timelines. I don't have anywhere I could just like go that I wrote it down and let alone reading it daily. So I don't do that anymore. I did mention I'm playing with this current manifestation asking for this one sale. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm finding my path that works for me. And I think that's, you know, a theme of how I talk about things. There's, there is no cookie cutter and it's being open, seeing different things and finding what works for you. And I haven't found something that works for me for where I'm at now. And I'm starting to, I feel like it's coming. And, um, yeah, to your point, you know, about time being experience and time and space being unique to earth and this human experience, one thing I did a Akashic Records call yesterday and, you know, first time in like eight months I did, did one and it's been a while. I used to do them all the time, but um, she did mention that I'm very impatient and that's come up with different readers and things like that. And, and it finally clicked for me yesterday and it was like, oh, because I'm not, I don't remember exactly what she said for it to click for me. And that's a very important thing too, that our teachers don't necessarily connect the dots and tell you straightforward, but let you put the pieces together for you to come to the conclusion yourself, because that's really when it hits. Um, 
And it hit for me a different way. It was like, oh, my soul isn't used to being in this dimension on this planet. Like this isn't like my home. And I'm used to places where anywhere outside of here where time isn't a thing and it's an instant manifestation. So that makes sense why I'm so impatient. That makes so much sense. It really clicked for me. Um, but yeah, that's just some thoughts I have that come up. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I think there's... a maybe that's something because impatience is something I believe a lot of us, a lot of people struggle with. It's, you know, we want things instantaneously and there's no shortage of, it's also our culture. Yeah, I was going to say, there's also no shortage of that with stuff like the internet. And, you know, we have our phone, we can look up things instantly. We want dopamine faster. And so that also, I'm sure as to that level of, you know, I'm sure majority of us have had lives on different planets and different, you know, whatever you want to talk about or call it. But, but yeah, I guess, well, maybe this is a new idea that I haven't explored yet, but the idea of, I guess, manifestations occurring faster instantaneously in other places. Um, so it's kind of a new, new topic for the, for the podcast. So I'm not really sure how to dive into it. Mm -hmm. Would this, would this fall into well, the alien it, conversation? Yeah. I mean, so aliens are, you know, such an interesting thing, you know, and um, what is an alien, right? What is a multidimensional being? What is an extraterrestrial? And in a sense, it's, it's any spirit that's in on a different planet or in another dimension. And if you believe in life on other planets and life in other dimensions, basically saying if you believe in reincarnation, quote, afterlife, in a lot of ways, I feel like the human experience is more of a death experience than a life experience because it doesn't feel like ultimate truth to me. And a good way to visualize this is the movie Soul when they're playing around in the astral plane. Like the astral and other dimensions, higher dimensions feels more like uppercase reality to me as opposed to this being ultimate reality. So there's so many different ways to look at it, but they do say that, you know, in other dimensions, in other planets, and we could call it spirits, souls, aliens, multidimensional beings, whatever you want to call it, they're able to manifest instantaneously. And even like uh, UFOs, for example, like those travel on thought, you know, it's not like uh, we're stuck in this 3D heavy density realm where we're thinking about like spaceships and we're looking at UFOs and it's like, no, they can appear and disappear because they're traveling by thought. And it's just, it's not about like how many light years it takes to get to earth. Um, so much to go down there in terms of extraterrestrials and multidimensional beings. My two resources I would refer people to would be Dolores Cannon's work. She's written 17 books, um, hypnotherapist. Um, you could find her YouTube speech on the three waves of volunteers, um, and the new earth on YouTube. It's about two hours and it's a summary essentially of her, one of her books, uh, also at the same title, Three Waves of Volunteers in the New Earth. And the other is Dr. Stephen Greer and his uh, specific uh, documentary, uh, Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind. Uh, he's got several, but that's the one I would refer people to. And those those are good places to start. Um, Missing Links is a good documentary too. Um, 
Oh, and see, there's more and more <laughs> and more. Um, the Ancient Secret of the Flower of Life by Dronvalo Malkizadek. That's a great book. And then last one, The Law of One or the book uh, Starseed Transmissions. Well, The Law of One's crazy because that's with Ra. And yeah. I was reading that book on the – well, I wasn't reading it, but I was on my way to Egypt and you know I've heard of it before. Nice. Yeah, and I – and I searched, there's a website where you can just like put in keywords and it'll scan all of uh, the raw materials and give you like questions and answers that have those oh, keywords cool. in it. Well, my favorite keyword to search is pyramid. <laughs> and what it, raw says is that they created, and so who, those who don't know, raw is essentially a collection of like, assume that all of human consciousness, we all put all of our bullshit aside and we are all able to like tell it telepathically talk to each other. And essentially we were able to all telepathically talk to each other. And we essentially all formed into one entity or one, you know, symbol. And that's essentially what raw is. And so what raw says is that I don't know if they came from earth or left earth or what their thing is, is, but they essentially came to earth to help out humans and, they claim that they created the pyramids just based on thought form. And this is what comes back to your instantaneous manifestation is that, you know, that, I mean, first of all, we still don't know how the hell they created the pyramid, the great pyramid to this day. And it blows my mind because everything that they say in the raw book connects all the dots. Like as hard as it is for me to conceptualize as a human being that you could have be completely clear of thought and produce something literally manifested instantaneously from the energy particles that are just in the air. But it's kind of funny too, because quantum physics is almost bringing us <laughs> is almost making this real uh, in a sense, but for them to essentially say, okay, we just thought of the pyramid and it just came to be, it's like shit. Like, you know, there's truth here. Like, like this just makes sense. It's like something at your soul level is like, okay, there's truth to this and it answers all of the questions we have about the pyramid all in the same thing. It's like, well, you know, this is where the logical mind comes in in science. It's like, well, you can't just have pure thought and create something. It's like, well, no, you just don't know how to do it. <laughs> it doesn't mean it's not possible. You just don't know how. And so it, it kind of really opens up the wormhole of like, what the fuck? <laughs> Well, it goes back to what you said earlier about how, you know, we used to think that we're the center of the universe True. and, you know, earth and versus the sun and, and Galileo and all that. And we still think that, you know, Graham Hancock is starting to open people's minds to like, hey, maybe we are not the most civilized civilization to ever walk this planet in a planet that has been around, we think 4.6 billion years in a universe that is infinite and humanity. Andy, you know, who knows how long humans have been around, maybe a hundred thousand years, maybe who knows, but we go back to, you know, the time of Jesus, most of, um, our history that is relevant today is from like a couple hundred years old, a few hundred years old, or maybe 2000 nothing. years old, you know, and even if you go back to the, Egyptians, yeah, exactly. And 20,000 years ago, well, it's I nothing. was just, I was going, uh. I was going, <laughs> Yeah. And then before the Egyptians, you go to the Atlanteans and the Lumerians. And, you know, one of the things Graham Hancock said that really resonated me, resonated with me when I first went down this path is like, if there was a cataclysmic event 
that were to happen now, it would wipe us out and there wouldn't be anything that would show we ever existed because there's nothing like the pyramids that would withstand the cataclysmic event. Therefore, if we look backwards, maybe there's some civilizations that were more evolved than us now. And first of all, yes, to your point with Egypt, like who's to say we're more evolved than times of Egypt, the Sumerians and the Atlanteans or the Lumerians because of our technology, like in our cars and whatnot. First of all, there's also hieroglyphics that show that they may have had planes and or their version of planes and things like that. But like, I would argue that if you're able to manifest something instantaneously or like the higher realms of consciousness, you're far more evolved than us uh, being able to create, you know, your computer science guy, like be able to create the way we're communicating now on zoom. You know what I mean? Like this isn't necessarily it, but our, because of our conditioning, we think of this as more evolved, you know? Yes. And there's a lot, there's three things that I'd love to unpack here. First thing is, is I remember that there was a poll that I put on my Instagram. It was like, you know, do you believe that we are the most evolved or most intelligent beings that have ever existed on planet earth. And dude, it was over 80% of maybe 40 people. So not the biggest sample size like responded, but 80% of out of 40 thought that we are the most intelligent creatures or beings to ever be on earth, which I guess is crazy. Maybe that <laughs> leads to our ego in a sense. Um, the, could also be showing your demographic. True. I mean, cause I don't know your demographic and you know, my demographic, sorry. Um, but when I started the podcast, that would be my demographic after joining like fit for service and, you know, now being connected with so many more spiritual people, if I put that same poll out, it would show vastly different than when I started. Very so true. It, that's one thing to be mindful that's of very as true. well. And a great point, you know, even from a, but even from a scientific standpoint, that's a great, you know, point. Well, this was, I think yeah, this was yeah, even true. before, this was even before the podcast. This wasn't even like a recent, yeah, well, there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah. So it was probably definitely more like, you know, the homies yeah. and you're starting to get into <laughs> and they're like, bro, bro, Clayton, like, what are you getting into? Like, <laughs> trust me, I've, I've had all my friends thinking I'm crazy and nuts. So I'm I, getting I, hammered I, on yeah. the weekend, poisoning my body for uh, four days a week. I'm, I'm obviously the most intelligent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's put that poll out again. You put out that poll and tag me or um, send it to me and I'll put it out on mine too. And it'll be interesting to see our, your current demographic and mine, and then also compare oh, yours yeah. and mine with the poll results. That'd like be that fun. We'll, we'll talk about how we like set that up or cause I'm, we'll, yeah. we'll figure it out. Um, yeah, and yeah. then what was the other thing that I was thinking of? I was thinking of something else. Oh, I went to the national museum of history. There's a really nice one here in Pittsburgh, uh, Carnegie. And just to look at all the dinosaur bones that they've got there, I think it might be one of the biggest in, um, in the world. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. But what blows my mind is whenever they talk about the years that they believe that certain dinosaurs were on earth and it's like somewhere between, you know, you know, if it's a certain species, they're like, they have these gaps of like 30 million years, like that. They're not sure. Like, it's like, maybe they were between yeah. 30 million years of existence to me. And and then the entire period itself was like 250 million years. And so to me, I'm like, man, like it, I was like, I compared humans to it and humans 
I, I think chimpanzees have been on Earth for maybe 10 million years. And humans, like uh, Homo sapiens, like branched off maybe five million years ago, and then our brain developed over the course of two or three million years. And so, to me, it's like, how on earth was there not a conscious being on Earth? Because mushrooms had to be here. Maybe that's a maybe, maybe that because I believe in that. I think there's a whole lot of uh, value in the stoned ape I thought, stoned ape theory. I'm sure you're familiar with that. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I guess maybe the one thing is maybe that the asteroid that took out the dinosaurs brought mushrooms with it, <laughs> but assuming mm-hmm. that mushrooms were here before here, mycelium was here before dinosaurs, there had to be a conscious, like it's something that was self-aware whenever dinosaurs existed. Right. Like it, like to me, it just, mm-hmm. I was looking at all these numbers and I'm like, there's no way that there hasn't, and I know it's going to sound crazy to say, like, there's no scientific evidence for anything that I'm spewing right now, but it was just like this intuitive download that was like, like there had to have been something, there had to have been something conscious that was alive during the dinosaurs that was self-aware of its, of its surroundings. And like you're saying, if an asteroid hit, there's going to just wipe it out and they're not going to, we're not going to know that there was ever anything like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I haven't had those thoughts in a while, but it brings me back. Um, I, I I love it. Yeah, I'm not the best at retaining information, especially when numbers are involved. But the like Atlanteans and the Lumerians, do you know how far back ago they were? I'm not sure. I haven't done a whole lot of research. Yeah, but on them. Yeah, if you're talking, so because I don't know, but um, so were dinosaurs about 250 million years ago? Is that what we think, give or take a few million? I think they <laughs> existed for 250 million. Maybe we should look this up. But I think there was probably like a 70 million year gap between uh, timeline. And the other thing is like how close, yeah, like how close were the dinosaurs to 4.6 billion? Because if we think Earth has been around for 4.6 billion, let's just do the math. It could be a billion years ago that the dinosaurs were around. Then there's still 3.6 billion <laughs> years of not knowing <laughs> what was here. On its own, you know, right, dude, right? Like, something. yeah, exactly. So if you just look at the number 4.6 billion years, we think this plan is 4.6 billion years. Like, how are we going to able to trace back uh, far enough like it's insane because there's something like you know if it's a 24-hour clock humans have only been on planet earth for five seconds or something like that oh yeah yeah, i've seen that yeah okay there's a lot of cool so the first like official quote-unquote dinosaur it was kind of like just like the little arthropod things like just like real small things would have been 540 million years ago and yeah, exactly. It's still less than a billion. Right. And so then they would have existed, it looks like, up to 66 million years ago. So it's almost 500 million years that dinosaurs were on Earth. And it looks like humans have only really been around for two and a half million years. Like Homo sapiens have been around for two and a half million years. You're telling me that in mm-hmm. 500, million year, 500 million years of dinosaurs being on planet Earth, not one species developed consciousness and we managed to pull it off in a mere 2.5. 
or even before dinosaurs, you know, because I, I could get behind that there wasn't conscious beings um, during the dinosaur period of 250 million years or whatever it is. There's still nearly 4 billion years that's not documented and accounted for before that. You know, that's kind of like the bigger number that stands out to me. But either way, like, yeah, it's um, thinking that we're the most... Um, evolved species to ever walk this planet is like to me one of the most narcissistic thoughts that we could possibly have yeah, you know? for sure and and here here's the thing is maybe we should figure out the wording of this question because it's pinging to me right now if you say intelligent like intelligent is a really tricky word because if you say like who's mm. more intelligent this person or this person it's like you know what are we basing this off of more evolved yeah, like more uh, conscious uh, or more evolved yeah yeah, the book uh, Ancient Secret of the Flower of Life, by, Volume 1 by Dronvalo Malkizadek does a really good job of talking about like the different levels of consciousness. And I know David Hawkins talks about that as well, a little bit different than Malkizadek in this um, way. But it's more of like a, a consciousness and um, I'm blanking right now, but... Yeah, it's um, it's not about like intelligence in the way we do it. It's it's a it's evolved, and you know we're a, a less evolved being. Um, and to me, like that's you know I don't need stats and figures, and I'm still open. You know, it's I know I'm speaking absolutes, but at the same time, like that's what resonates with me and just rings true. So yeah, and I guess <laughs> I mean maybe to calm myself down at the end of the day, like. I guess, I guess the question becomes is whether or not does it actually matter, right? Because if I don't know, like yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that's the next piece yeah. of this. I think this is, I think this is part of the spiritual awakening process uh, for when we first go down this rabbit hole to get really caught up in all of these big questions, and as we start to explore more and to choose your own adventure, we start to look at different things. And yeah, I agree. I talked with a friend this morning, he's going through a breakup and, um, you know, his, I already told him about the concept of twin flames, not to change the subject and get into twin flames. But then he told me that she on her own said something about him, him being their twin flame. And I left him a long voice text, just being like, don't get caught up in all the drama and chaos of you know, of the twin flame and identifying with that label or anything like that. My point in saying that is more from this book, Sacred Contracts, and thinking about soul contracts to give you a way to process and understand this. The getting into the drama of like, oh my God, you're my twin flame and oh, this is why and blah, blah, blah. Like I'd invite you to not get caught up in that, but you can use it to be like, oh, this is why it hurts so bad. And this is why X, Y, Z happened. This is what I have forward to look, I have to look forward to as a result of being my twin flame of, of course, correcting me on the path. Right. And it's the same thing that you and I are talking about right now. Sure. This stuff is so fun to talk about. But if we can get lost in it and make that reality, like, I mean, not that it's a bad thing, like everyone has their passions and things like that, but if it, you'll know when to come out of that 
you know, kind of rabbit hole. My dad said to me a couple of years ago, like something along the lines of like, why can't you just enjoy it? Why, why can't you just be happy? Like, why does all this stuff matter to you? And I go, dad, you're passionate about hunting and fishing and gardening and, you know, training your dogs and all you have so many things you're passionate and all these hobbies. Like this is uh, one of my passions and a hobby and something I'm curious about. Um, at the same time though, like, I've realized that in myself, kind of similar to what you're saying, like, well, doesn't, you know, I'm here to be human. So I try not to get too caught up in it all. It would be different if that was my profession, bringing this back to the difference between pleasure and business, right? If I was like, a, if I was Graham Hancock or say Greg Braden or someone like that, who this was like their career path, then I would take a different approach to it. But for me, it's just a fun thought experiment, yeah. you know? I mean, it. It kind of invites that play, right? Like it's, it, mm-hmm. it's yeah, one of those things. Time. It's like, you know, well, what if? Like, well, what if? Uh, what if there was conscious life on the dinosaurs? Like, what would that look like? Like, what? Because I would, I'd want to experience that. I'm, <laughs> I haven't like deep dove, but if I ever learned, and I think I have done it once, but if I've ever really learned how to astral project, dude, first place I'm going is you know mm-hmm. four hundred million years ago. Like, <laughs> I want to see. I want to see what that shit looked like because there are some gnarly dinosaurs that I'm like, yeah, this would be cool to see this that shit going on. Get some ketamine and and go on an inward journey with some good music and make sure you get it from the legit source so it doesn't have fentanyl on it. Um, and you'll be astral traveling to anywhere you want to go for sure. Be responsible, hundred percent. Don't you know? Don't be reckless. Ketamine is a uh, there's amazing studies that are happening right now with ketamine and does miracle work for depression, but there's a shadow side too. So if you're able to do it, you know, in a ceremonial way and use, um, intention and, you know, have it from a legit source, because that is something to be extremely, um, cautious about, uh, you could definitely, I believe experience that for sure. Yeah. And, I, I guess I've never heard, I've heard of ketamine, but I've never, and I've never done it, but I've mm-hmm. heard, I've never heard of it either. I've heard of it. I haven't done it, but this is the first time that I've heard of it being used for something like astral projection. Is that like, it, like, mm-hmm. would you say that that's the drug you should use if you're trying to astral project, obviously with all your disclosures? Uh, yeah. I mean, this is a tricky topic. Um, you know, it's tricky and this isn't something I talk about on my podcast or I talk about publicly um, that much because it is such a a delicate subject because ketamine can have fentanyl. Ketamine is known as a party drug. It's different than talking about psilocybin for healing ayahuasca. It's not even the type of thing you would get on your own, do on your own. At least I would hope not. Same with Bufo or, you know, any of these things. Ketamine, however, it's very easy to get on the streets. Um, I was turned off to doing ketamine for a long time, and then I eventually tried it, and I did it ceremonially, um, and I got a source from a legit source. And I went within with music and it felt like the movie inception, like creating my own reality and being the architect and uh, building these places and 
astral traveling and seeing things. And I've been inside of the pyramids, like all kinds of stuff. And ketamine, like I had a really dark time with ketamine where I was addicted to ketamine and I would do it several times a week and I abused it and it got very, very dark. And part of that is because it's this, you know, for me, a lot of times it comes back to not wanting to be on earth and not in a suicidal way, but just wanting to be outside of uh, this third density of space and time. And, you know, ketamine was my thing that gave me a glimpse into that because for the most part, I don't really have visions or uh, in ayahuasca ceremonies or anything like that. Um, you know, for me, it's more heady and, and downloads and, you know, maybe some slight visions. And definitely without medicine, I'm not like putting the stars in astral traveling and doing all that. So ketamine was a very accessible way to get there. And then it became a thing where especially, you know, a lot of times I have a story of weather dictating my mood and when it gets dark at five in the fall and all that type of stuff, you know, depression comes and things like that. So it became very easy for me to just do ketamine and go to a place that, you know, was more fun and it got very dark. So all of this to say, you know, I am not a proponent. I am not advising to use any of these medicines um, specifically. Um, they can be great teachers and healers and illuminate things that you have within you if you do them responsibly, but you also want to be very um, respectful in the way you approach them. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that what was coming to me is something I've heard people talk about and I was like, Oh, that's probably true. I've never experienced it myself, but I know there's a, maybe a subculture in the plant medicine healing where people kind of just do it because they see it as this healing thing. And it's like, Oh, I'm going to do ayahuasca this week. Then next week I have a psilocybin ceremony. Then the week after that I'd be doing ketamine and it becomes almost like this toxic plant medicine healing thing where you're putting all Big of time. your power into these plants. And it's like, at the end of the day, it's like, Whoa, take a step back. Like these are good for pulling the shades back and exposing some light in some dark areas. But at the end of the day, you still need to integrate. You still need to check in with yourself. You still need to feel what quote unquote sober, although a weird word, <laughs> because I mean, you could argue this yeah. is a whole giant trip in itself. <laughs> um, but being, mm -hmm. let's say sober, like that has so many lessons to teach you all on its own that if you're constantly just, well, I'm going to go to this ceremony, then this one, then that one, it's like, well, a, you're never gonna have time to integrate and B it's like, you can trip out right here, right? Just using your breath even. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. No, I agree with all of that. And for me, like it never got too dark or too bad. Like, I mean, I had that period with ketamine. I've had times where it was questionably close going from one ceremony to another, but it was a teacher for me to learn that side from felt experience of going through it to a certain extent. Um, and yeah, I'm very passionate about that. You know, the, my book soul life balance was initially going to be geared more towards workaholics, inviting a new way to live very much on, uh, introductory where it wasn't going to go too deep. And then through 
the writing process and kind of where I was at coming out on the other side of really realizing how much space we need to put in between the time to integrate. It became more of a book of integrating for those that have had a spiritual awakening, especially if it was through medicine. So yeah, um, just through the timing of when the book was ready to be birthed, it turned into kind of the season I was in, in my life. You That's know? awesome. I mean, and you know, everything happens whenever it needs to, right? Or, yeah, or is that totally. a, <laughs> would that be toxic, uh, yin energy right there? <laughs> uh, the, the thin line of spiritually yeah, bypassing. Spiritually bypassing uh, again? That, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a fun thought exercise and I have a good friend who, um, you know, I can get on her case from time to time. Cause she's one of those people that's always like, everything is perfect, you know? And, and then it's some things I'm like, yeah, is that perfect too? And, um, she called me up a few days ago with an amazing, phenomenal story about how, you know, basically this one person was traumatized because of X, Y, Z and that need to happen for them to heal like their relationship, their wound with their father. And, you know, she realizes, and I'm not speaking for everyone, this is her words, but she realizes that her sexual assault that happened to her multiple times at different points in her life needed to happen and that it is all perfect. And I'm like, yes, you know, kind of like what I wrote in that section, I hundred percent believe it, but I do think there's certain times when we really need to catch ourselves. But for the, the overarching like belief is yes, everything is perfect and everything happens exactly when it's supposed to happen. Um, so yeah, I do believe that, but I think we can get in the way our egos can get in the way and use that as a way to, you know, be like, Oh, I'm going to throw down 10 grand on the statue because what the fuck, you know, this is all play anyway. You know, we need to bring a little, as you put it, discernment into it. It's a good point. And I think that's something that I'm going to be a lot more conscious of over the next week is, is that element of let's call it spiritual bypassing. Cause I think that's super powerful. And I think whenever I, we get off here, that's the first section I'm going to jump to in your book to read that. Cause <laughs> you know, it is, that is, it's something I'm toiling with right now. I've never even had a word for it. And I guess I was never even kind of conscious of it. Cause I was kind of just like, you know, and there was this level of almost inquiring too much, if that's possible, where you, you talk about these things with people and then you, almost push it on every single sentence that they say. And I, you know, there's a little bit of toxicity in that maybe where it becomes a little bit ego driven of, well, I'm seeing on the other side of things, like, you know, here's another, here's another opportunity for you to glimpse into this higher level of consciousness. I don't know if that makes sense. Did that make sense? No, I, I, I get what you're saying. I, I get it. And, you know, it's, that's where, you know, we can use your own advice and bring more play and just be like, eh, whatever, you know, like sometimes we get lost in these thought patterns or these trying to really trace it to the result. And, you know, um, that's fun until it's not, <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? No. So. Yeah. And yeah, I guess it, I guess that's probably a good way to look at it. It is and maybe that's where you kind of balance that yin and yang energy, like with the statue. It's like, well, if you do mm -hmm. this, is it going to make your life more play or less play? You know, and if you're creating a ton of stress, financial pressure, let's say, it's like, if you can still view that in a world of play, then, you know, maybe why not? But 
you know, maybe there's that level of, well, first of all, the discipline of, Hey, you said if it was sitting down and this one's standing. So, you know, mm. so, there's, so I guess there's two things there, right? There's one is that discipline of before I saw it, but also it's like, are you still going to be able to play with life or is this going to make life more serious if you actually purchase this? And this is what soul life balance is all about, right? Bringing in the archetypal energies of yin and yang, masculine, feminine, feminine logic and intuition, you know, and to your point earlier, talking about the pendulum swing, like, you know, making sure that we're not swinging too far to one side that's just all analytical or, and logical and the other side that's all is perfect, light and love, you know, finding that kind of balance in between that works for you. Yeah. And I think that's a great place to kind of wrap this up because I just saw that we're at, we're a little bit over the three hour mark, which is. I can't believe we did over three hours. Nuts. That's nuts to me. I've never been on a Zoom call, let alone a <laughs> podcast, um, sitting at my computer for over three it's hours. It's crazy, right? It just flies <laughs> by too. Yeah, um, for sure. I think you're the second person I, that I got over three hours, which is, I don't know, crazy from my perspective because it's like. I don't know. They're just getting longer, which I love it. But for Sam, sure, at this point, I usually, obviously your book is something you should plug, but I give my, uh, I guess you don't even need to at this point. <laughs> yeah, half this podcast was talking about concepts from your book. Uh, but I give the, the guests some time to just, if you want to encourage people to do something, if something's on your mind, if you want to plug any of your material, uh, you know, the floor is yours, you know, have at it. Yeah, similar to you with your course, like with my book, I, I price at a very accessible uh, price point. And for me, that is because I'm so passionate about this. And the biggest core concept from the book is something I touched on earlier, and it's about mission, dharma, and purpose. And it's really the invitation to sit with yourself, whether it be meditation, reflection, contemplation, or journaling, and to see how you're living in your life. And if there are things that you can identify that you may be doing for external validation out of external pressures and to really take your sovereignty, sovereignty and power back and let go of those things that you don't need anymore. And for more in the book and to connect with me, you can check out Soul Life Balance Book. Dot com. There it's got links to all my podcast, Soul Seeker, my social media. Obviously, I purchased the book and so much more. That's soullifebalancebook.com. And Clayton, this was an awesome experience, bro brother. I am so stoked to have done this with you. You're an awesome dude. I can't wait to stay connected with you after the podcast and have you on my podcast and unpack uh, your letting go story, Egypt and your journey as well. So I just appreciate the opportunity and this has been a lot of fun. I didn't know what a three hour podcast <laughs> would be like. So I appreciate it. it. It's pretty wild. And dude, I appreciate you as well, man. Like super grateful. You took the time out of your day. I know, I know it's, it's hard. It's weird asking people for three hours of their time too, because it's like, what? It's like, you don't do that. It's like podcasts aren't that long, but thank you. I appreciate you being here, man. I look forward to it. And yeah, I think it's a great, I think we left everything off just enough. So now people got to go listen to us again on yours. Um, also with that being said, I'm going to grab all your links from you. And so guys, you don't even need to remember those links. Just go down below and you'll see them in the show notes as well. And other than that, I don't think I have any updates, but yeah, conscious monkeys, let's keep, uh, let's keep growing together.